My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. And we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week in the studio, a U.S. Marine that gave 11 years of his life to the Corps. During his years of service, he served on five deployments with one trip to Iraq and one trip to Afghanistan. Although he has been an infantryman, all-marine boxer, and combat instructor at the School of Infantry, during this conversation tonight, we're going to focus on his time as a squad leader in the Battle of Marja. The injuries, both physical and psychological, that he received, and what it takes to dedicate your life to veterans and transitioning troops to make sure that they land on both feet upright upon their entry back into civilian life where far too often we hear that these Marines and soldiers lose focus, passion, and a mission to live their life by. My guest this week will tell you how after reading Marcus Luttrell's book, he turned his daily notes into this fantastic first-hand account of his time with the Lions of Marja, both good and bad. It's my pleasure to introduce former United States Marine and host of the Choices Not Chances podcast, Ryan Rogers. What's going on, my friend? Hey man, DJ, nice to uh, nice to be on. I you know humbled, honored to be here. I appreciate you having me on, man. Yeah, uh, we've got a lot to talk about. Uh, this book, fantastic. What you're doing out there right now in this space is fantastic, and I really want to get your thoughts on a couple things. But let's, as we always do in the very beginning, let's go back to the beginning and talk about when you were a youth. Do you come from a military family do you come from a first responder family what is it that put you on this path because as everything that i've read know about you you were still in high school when september 11th happened yeah that's right um no i don't i don't have notable you know military members in my in my uh you know in my history in my family um there's some speckled in and out but nobody that was profoundly impacted my life um I know that my father's grandfather, so my great grandfather, uh, he fought in World War II as an army medic, um, and that would be the extent. And you know, really, my life looked like it was going a different way. I was I was playing baseball. You know, I was in a um, you know general about a middle class you know middle class family. I had you know I didn't I didn't want for anything, um, but there was always a sense of servitude and selflessness that was taught from my from my mother and my father growing up, you know, and, um, you know, sprinkled in with, with dabs of, you know, like, uh, patriotism from, from time to time. Um, and then when nine 11 took place, that kind of rerouted my future as it were. Now I've heard you talk about when nine 11 happened and that you were able to see, you know, the towers fall and, and, and to watch those kind of things. I was in the military at the time when the towers fell. Um, and I know that day that when you see that stuff and you see the first tower get hit by the plane, you think, okay, it's a crazy thing. And then all this stuff starts unfolding all around you on the news. And then you figure out, you know, that we're under attack. When you see that as a young, because you were a freshman in high school. So 
when you see something like that, it, it does, you say, kind of light that fire to give that service to the country, but you know you can't do anything. So how does it feel being that age and knowing, man, I still got time. Is it still going to be around? Am, am I still going to be able to participate in this? Kind of walk us through that and how you felt knowing that it was so far away. That goal was still yet so far away. Yeah. Um, so, so I was a freshman in, in high school, like you said, and they kind of wheeled in a cart on a TV and uh, we we're nobody really knew what was going on. We especially until the second and third and fourth, you know, after that first one, everybody's just trying to get a grasp on what is going on right now. Like, but then you see the second one come in and boom. And, and then you see people, you know, jump into their deaths, you know, hundreds of feet because of the, you know, the fiery, you know, heat they're trying to escape from the inside. And I don't know what it did. I don't know why it did what it did to me. Um, I had always, you know, I grew up hunting, fishing, trapping with my dad and my brothers and so outdoorsy you know identifying uh animals and plants alike in the woods that was just kind of like that was my childhood growing up that in sports and so um it didn't seem so far off off base to me when i when that happened that that joining the service would be something that i would you know want to do you know and, and probably excel at but um but it was definitely it was definitely uh, a wake up call inside of me. Something inside of me came alive, and and um, and I would have to say that had to be from nine eleven. Had to be from witnessing that and just saying, you know, I know that something's coming. I don't know how long it's going to last, but something's coming, and I want to be a part of it. That that woke up then, and then you know, like you said, I had to go for the through the next three and a half years, um, you know, watching watching the Marines in the initial invasion go through, you know, the guys that generation kills made after going through and toppling statues and making short work to, you know, then moving into a, you know, a coin based operation. Uh, you got on Nazaria and uh, phantom fury with Fallujah was just as I was leaving for boot camp, uh, or just, yeah, just as I had, uh, uh, left for boot camp, getting into that boot camp area for my career. And so watching these things happen, um, at first you don't know how much time. And then it seemed to like, okay, well, this is going to be, this is, this is going to be going on. And now, you know, 2004 I'm graduating and we're, you know, Fallujah one and two happening. So there's no letdown and those are big fights right there. And so it was like, I'm, you know, going to get after it, going to get into it. And you know, your career, <laughs> everybody's career has a different way of humbling them and a different way of showing them around and a different way of maybe ultimately landing them where they need to be when they need to be there. And I kind of feel that way about my career. Um, when I came in, I came in on a security forces contract, uh, ultimately going to be an 0311, you know, infantryman, but I'm going to go up and do some time at fast company in, in Norfolk. And, you know, I'm grateful for those times. I'm grateful for the training that I got in there. Um, we had some, you know, th the best training as far as you could ask for, as far as, uh, you know, CQB and advanced urban combat. We got tons of schools, tons of weapons, tons of training. And, um, and but it wasn't what I, I didn't get to go to Ramadi. I didn't get to go to Fallujah. And those things were things that I was, uh, you know, thinking I was going into, you know, and then you get rerouted after SOI. Some of your buddies go to the fleet and then you go off to a school somewhere and, uh, and so you have to kind of, you got to stick around. That's what they would tell us. You got to stick around. Yeah, you got to readjust. Now, two things come from that when you talk about that. One, you mentioned your dad in there and your brothers and 
and hunting and fishing. And, and that's what gave you that competitive spirit. Now, you talk about that in the book and the competitive spirit and, and wanting to be very good at what you do. When you go to fast, I've heard you say that it was sold to you kind of in a different way than what was really going to happen. And then you said that you had friends that you went through boot with and all that kind of stuff that kind of shipped out and got into the fight. Mm. So when you think about it, though, and you go back to it and you look at that, um, one, I want to talk about that competitive spirit. How does that affect you when you see something you joined to do? You waited, like we said, three and a half years to finish high school, then boot, then you do all this stuff. And then you see your friends and your best friend, roommate, by the way, break off and get into the fight. How does that competitive spirit bite at you? And then number two, now that you look back on it, like we always say from a 30,000 feet perspective or from, you know, a, a 2020 hindsight perspective, how do you look at it now? I guess that's a good point. I, I guess there's a little bit of envy. Initially, I wanted to go. I wanted to be in those fights and I'm breaking off to yet go to another school to stand by to get, you know, then to get dropped into a unit. And so at the time it was like, um, you know, I, I'm going to get there, but I have to do this first. And, uh, you know, sometimes doing that first sucks, especially when you're watching your roommate or your bunkmate from boot camp ship into a, you know, a known hostile territory. And you're like, man, you know, I hope it turns out good for them. But you like, there's no, that's, they're called uh, orders, not asks. Right. So you're, you're going, you're going where you're going and, and you have to catch up with them later. That's one of the things about, you know, life and service that you have to adapt to. But, um, if I'm to zoom out, you know, to a 30,000 foot perspective, then I would say it was the best thing that could happen to me. Um, I got dropped into a fast platoon where I had great leadership, great small unit leadership from the team squad and platoon sergeant level. Even our platoon commander was uh, awesome. Captain Gustafson at the time. And uh, Ty Davis was, uh, you know, infantry hard hitter, you know, that, uh, that kind of showed us the way. And we had some, we had some phenomenal squad leaders and I, it was the unit you want to be in. You know, it was the, it was the unit where everybody is young, everybody is in shape, everybody's hard as woodpecker lips and ready to train. And we did a lot of that. You know, we stayed training when we were home, you know, when we were stateside, we stayed training, stayed in the field. Um, you know, and at the time, a lot of guys don't appreciate that. I always love the field, always love training. I never cussed it. Um, but it, it paid dividends. I mean, we had a tight unit We everybody could shoot multiple, you know, we, we did sidearm shotgun M4, uh, over at fast. So we got very proficient with a lot of weapons. And then we cross trained on two forties, Mark 19s and fifties. Um, and we did some good stuff. Uh, they did a refuel defuel just before I got there. And then we did a, uh, Cuba fence line deployment um and and uh got to learn what you know standing a mop tower by yourself for eight hour shifts is all about which is awesome and uh just as awesome as it sounds anyway and then um you know and then we went to southeast asia and to bahrain to be a quick reaction force for southeast asia just before you know hezbollah and israel kind of got tangled up and we ended up going into beirut lebanon and doing non-combatant evacuation then um which was you know, zooming out and, and looking where my career went and where it started, it was another cool thing um, that happened. I had a very cool career uh, of 11 years. I got to, you know, see Cuba and do some stuff there, get some great training. And then I get to go do this non-combatant evacuation where, you know, the strike, strike group uh, commandeered some ferry boats and some cruise liners. And we, 
you know, we put two forties and fifties on them and then took these people, you know, out of Beirut and floated them down across to uh, Cyprus, a little, you know, Royal Air Force base. And then they flew, you know, the refugees basically out from there, but it was that feel good mission. We were helping people. And, you know, a lot of our generation of Marines didn't, my generation of Marines didn't get to feel that, um, that type of mission, I think, you know, a lot of it was just over back, over back, over back, killing, killing, killing. And so I got to see some of that, you know, that heartthrob that, you know, uh, I remember, I'll never forget it. We were on the way back and we're on this ferry boat. And I mean, it's way overpacked. I mean, people are shoulder to shoulder. It's hot. And you know, nobody had water. Some people that were coming out were coming out of war torn areas in, in, in Lebanon with, you know, shrapnel and um, not horrible, but there were people fainting and, you know, this, that, and the other thing. Well, we were ordered to go in in plain clothes and um, because they didn't want, you know, a, you know, a, an American face on this, you know, non-combatant evacuation. And there's people from like Jersey. There's people from my hometown getting on this ship, you know, and we got these guns and all of a sudden I hear somebody, you know, um, there's a little bit of tussle because they threw a, they threw a prop. So here these people are coming out of this war torn, you know, missile, uh, explosion ridden area and the boat throws a prop and boom, the whole, the whole ship shakes. And I hear some of these kids from Jersey start saying, where's the Marines? Where's the Marines at a time like this? And like, we're on the boat with you, dude. You like, we got you. Uh, and I thought that was kind of a cool thing. We ended up talking to them all the way back, but it was a good, it was a good mission. And that, that, uh, that platoon that I was with, you know, they did great things, you know, from the, from the GP Marines on up through the leadership. There's a lot of moving parts. Um, and it was a good mission. And so to get to do those type of things, um, and get that type of training and have real world knowledge on, on things outside of, you know, the Verona training area outside Lejeune, uh, is good when you fast forward eight years and, and, and get into a real fight, you know, the same as I would say, you know, I dropped into Lima company, uh, three, two Basio bastards shortly after that, uh, Bahrain deployment, and I work into a deployment with them, um, but it just wasn't what I wanted. So another good one to learn from. Well, it's interesting when you talk about the leadership, because you mentioned leadership throughout the book. And, and it's four different reasons, different things that you either think that's good or bad about him. But when you mentioned that commander in the fast, you said that he told you guys while you were training and just repetitive training over and over that this will pay off dividends. Mm -hmm. Do you think looking back on your career that he was exactly right? A hundred percent. He knew where we were going and he knew that when we hit the fleet, if we didn't know two forties, marks, fifties, our own personals and sidearms, then we would be at a disadvantage and he would be putting a bad product back to the fleet. It's the way I think he looked at it. This was his two years to make the best shiny little product that he could to go back and influence the rest of the Marine Corps. I think the problem is at the time, a lot of commands didn't think that way over it fast. They looked at it as a B-billet vacation. And so a lot of time off, a lot of training budget, you get to do a lot of cool things. But our command was awesome. They knew right where we were going to end up. You know, those of us that stayed, they knew right where we were going to go. And, and it did. For me, it paid dividends. Um you know, the amount of the amount of ammunition that a fast platoon gets for a year is like real close to equivalent equivalent to that of like a company size or battalion size allotment of ammo. So we shoot a lot of rounds and we were able to get very good in the schools. I can't stress the schools enough, especially advanced urban combat school out of Chesapeake. Um, uh, Northwest Annex, I think it was called, when, you know, when we went there and 
I mean, talking about shooting steel transitioning from sidearm to M4 in seconds, you know, timed and you have to get through it. Full up shoot houses with full, you know, live round shoot houses where you're making dual entry. Um, just, a, just a phenomenal school that again paid off for me later uh, going to the fleet and being able to get these new guys out of SOI and then train them, you know, to that CQB level that I would want them out of my squad. Things like that helped out. Yeah. So when you talk about the other command, the other command doesn't think of it in that way, that it's more of a, a vacation or whatever you want to call it. How does that affect the fleet long-term? How does that affect, how does that affect the Marines long-term? I can only speak from the time that I was there, but there are, there are, um, <laughs> for me, there's no time A after I came home from Mars, there's no time. There's never enough time. And to say that you're going to take two years and just kind of, you know, be lackadaisical about your training, especially when you know a lot of these new guys are going to get dropped right into a fleet operating unit and they're going to be expected to know things. And, um, you know, the big gig when you leave fast to go to the fleet is you're going to get your eyes woken up because you haven't been there and they have. And it doesn't matter, you know, what you think you know, you haven't been deploying and they have. And so when you get to the fleet, um, people look at, at guys from fast or, or, or the stereotype or the stigma is that guys from fast or, or, or fast company or banger, the PRP Marines from banger, in Wa uh, Washington, Kings Bay, Georgia, that they know nothing. And so when you come to the fleet, you're almost just cast aside like that, you know, NCO that got his stripes over on a vacation. And that is the way it's looked at. Um, you have a guy that comes there, shows up, and actually, oh my God, he does know his stuff, and he can shoot, and he's and he's calm and making decisions. Then, then, then quickly, guys will will form around that and say, okay, you know, you are the exception to the rule. But the rule is that you're not worth anything coming from those commands, and it comes from, you know, this stereotype or this uh, this stigma. It didn't come from anywhere. It came from a bunch of commands taking two year vacations and putting a bad product back to the fleet. That's the way I see it. Um, even, even after I, you know, became a squad leader in the fleet, I, I looked at guys coming from fast and banger and Kings Bay the same way. Like I can't count on this. This, this has to prove itself to me before, you know, before I can feel comfortable. Um, you know, and that would happen. Sometimes that would happen, but the rule would be that the guys are out of practice. They're not doing grunt things. Uh, they'll be very good at CQB and they'll want to talk about their last unit. Like that's the stigma. And that, I mean, that's what it's done. You ask what it's done fleet wide or Marine Corps wide, it's created a negative stigma of I'm not getting a quality NCO product when it comes back from faster PRP commands. I think well, is it because, is it because they're spending because on this fast you were spending some of that time where where you were like an embassy response team right correct yep and so the way i look at that is the only way i can picture it when you say about the commands and the people that are in charge of it is they're just kind of looking to hop around the world and see some cool places and and eat some cool food and am i looking at it in the right way with how you're talking about it i mean I, I maybe talk about it a little bit too cavalier, but in my experience, from what I saw with my eyes, I know what my platoon did and we stayed training. And I mean, not little AUC training. I mean, we stayed in the field. We stayed hiking on the beaches. We stayed running. Um, Ty Davis, shout out Ty Davis. I mean, he trained us hard, just like we were a fleet infantry platoon. 
And, and he would talk about that. Y'all are going to thank me if, you know, you're going to thank us one day for this because this is what your life is that you, this ain't vacation up here, you know, and the NCOs knew what he was talking about, but all of us were kind of like ignorant. Like we didn't really realize. So it, it set us up. So, um, yeah. So let's uh, let's talk about this. So you do your Guantanamo Bay deployment. Now, a lot of people just want to know about that. It has such a, a lure to it, Guantanamo <laughs> Bay, when they hear about it. But I want to hear the real thing from a guy that's been there. Now, you, you talk about, but I think it's something that paid off for you in the end. You talk about standing in the towers for eight hours. But once again, I think that comes back and pays dividends that we'll talk about later on mm. when you're on OP life. Uh, I think it paid back way for you. So let's talk about someone that was on the inside, what it's really like at Guantanamo, and let's cut that that uh, shiny lacquer off it. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's going to ruin it if you're uh, hopelessly romantic about Guantanamo-based stories being cool. Um, cool deployment, and I say that in, in all seriousness. It was a cool deployment. They had some bars. They had some nightlife there that you could uh, – you could uh, take advantage of if you weren't on the, you know, the work cycle. And uh, we got some good, great training in, um, uh, but very uh, tedious. I mean, that's what you said. It's post standing. And so you have, you know, two sides of the base and we live on one side and we, you know, work on uh, the other side essentially. And, and um, Marine observation posts are what mops are. So you have these different mop posts, you know, around, uh, leeward and windward side and they have to be manned at all times and and generally they have a mirror post about a mile away which is a cuban post and you get to watch them go up and you have these like tourist big eye binoculars and you watch each other and you know essentially the duties i think are are uh, are to intercept cuban asylum seekers or casts as they're known and those are people just trying to get away from you know the regime on that side and maybe they're just trying to float away from the island sometimes they float away and come back on our side uh, sometimes they try to cross over, you know, the fence line, at which point they'd be taken in as a Cuban asylum seeker. Um, they'd be turned into the headquarters and then, you know, an exchange back to Cuba would be, you know, arranged down there at the at the gates. That's not something that I did. I never once had a Cuban asylum seeker seeking asylum from me at my post um, about the extent of my uh, enjoyable times working. We're watching the iguanas fight. You know, we'd throw like little Oreos or something <laughs> It'd land. They'd come out and like gooseneck each other and and kind of get after it over some Oreos. Or you could watch the they had huge tarpon. There was a couple of posts right by the water and you could see these huge tarpon go going um, schooling up. But outside of that, I mean, no, it's a we would work and then um, we'd have, you know, like 10 days on and then 10 days off. And in that 10 days off, it'd probably be five days of machine guns out in one of the salt flats somewhere. And then you'd have, you know, maybe like a 96, you know, an extended 96 to go out, you, you know, everybody get good and drunk and try not to make, you know, bad decisions, things of that nature. And um, that was kind of the extent of that deployment. It's nothing shiny. It's nothing special. Now, I was never in Camp America. I was never around the detainees um, uh, from the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. I was never around them. Maybe those guys have different stories that they can tell. Um but that's not something that I would even enjoy. I don't enjoy being around prisoners. I don't enjoy um, that side of things. I don't think they should, you know, if there was reason to take them, there's easy, you know, reason to break them in my opinion. So yeah. I, I just don't get it. 
Well, you know, I was more thinking of a few good men and, you know, maybe a code red <laughs> happening or something like that. I just want you no. to take the lacquer off that. But, yeah, you, you point out a very good point where you're not on that side. But I think a lot of people think about that. They don't really think about the mission that's going on, the day-to-day -day grind. And I think that's overlooked a lot in the military and law enforcement first responders is that day-to-day -day grind. It does pay off in the end. If everything comes together like it's supposed to, it all pays off. That boredom, that repetition, all that stuff pays off. When you leave Guantanamo and you rotate into Southeast Asia, now you're doing a couple different things. You're an embassy fast response team. Um, anything kick up there where at any point where you're thinking, okay, I'm not in the battle, but it's pretty cool. And I'm talking about at the time it's happening, not looking back on it now. At the time, are you like, all right, this is pretty cool? I mean, I had a great time in Bahrain. I'm not going to say uh, that it was bad. I had a great unit. We were all tight. Everybody was very competitive. We ran some uh, like infantry squad leaders courses out there, which were, um, you were a real ass kicker. I don't know if you've ever been to Bahrain, but it's like the hottest place on the planet. Maybe like first, second hottest place I've ever been. Um, and just absolutely horrible. We were doing a, a Madus range, a 50 cal range, and a sandstorm blown in, and it was like 129 plus degrees out, you know, and and like shut down training completely. I just remember like, and again, going back to what you said, those things, those just working through the suck of elements and the suck of time and, you know, all these things later helped out but um that that range was was by far the most miserable range i've ever been on um to date i've never been on a range that was as hot and then you're getting belted with sand and you know once the air goes red nobody's running ice and water back and forth and there's just some logistic failures there i think um but but also um you know, one side of things that sticks out in Bahrain, uh, we were allowed to like get these Liberty chits where we could go out in town. And, um, at the time I thought that was cool. Um, and then I went out in town, I got my Liberty chit and I'm in this taxi cab, I'm unarmed and I look like a Marine cause they're making us wear like slacks and dockers and, you know, tuck <laughs> our shit in and, you know, Those guys that get like, everything at the PX and, uh, yeah, yeah. screaming, I'm a Marine just so you can get <laughs> off base. Um, unarmed again so we go to the mall and we're at this like we're at this like the plate the drop off for the taxi cabs at the mall and like these guys get mad these taxi drivers they start getting mad and the next thing i know they're all cussing and like i reached down i have no no i have no weapon you know there's no way out of this situation and the only thing we could do is buy our way out of it like the, these guys were getting mad they wanted us to get out of the car they're like slamming on top of the hood trying to get us out it's like a traffic jam me and my buddy matt uh uh, Matt Burke were, were in this cab and it was like bad times, right? We end up getting out of it. But a few days later, some guys were off a of base in that same area. And there were some black flags in that area. And they told us, you ever see black flags flying, like try to steer clear of that area. And, um, and like, just so a couple of days later, right in that area by the police station out by the mall right there, some pipe bombs got hucked in at the, at the police. And that kind of shut the whole Liberty in that area down. Um, but I just, thinking back you know at the time i was like oh that's cool we were you know that was pretty wild situation and now thinking back is like that was that close to being a very 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 bad situation if the right people got a hold of us or you know got a hold of some marines there and so um that that kind of stuck out and then then of course you know 
you always train like every month we would have some random, you know, uh, fire alarm, you know, hurry up and get everything palletized in under an hour. Cause that's your mission. And we need to make sure we're mission ready. And then it came and it wasn't a drill, you know, it was like, okay, we're getting on a C-130 and we're flying to a little Island called Cyprus. Uh, we're going to stage here and then conduct noncombatant evacuations out of that Island. And, and, and so that was cool. I got to see that Island, which, you know, I never would have, you know, got the opportunity to even know it was there and jump off the cliffs there, which was amazing during PT. Cause you know, there's some downtime in all these operations. You get there, you set up, you still got to run. So you're running cliffside. And, um, so those things were pretty cool. Um, and then, you know, ultimately our platoon had a squad or two take, uh, choppers to the Iwo Jima refuel and then go into Lebanon um, and set up there. And then there was a couple of squads that helped out with the ferrying of the boats um, and, and, and that side of things, which was, which was cool. So. All right. So as you move to that, you, you still have not seen quote unquote combat. You haven't been in the, the active war zone. <clears throat> so I'm wondering how many years are we in right now? What are we about three years in? Yeah, two and a half, three years. Yeah. Yeah. Oh four, this is oh six that this was happening. Oh five, this was happening. And then I transitioned to the fleet in oh six over to three two. So I'm wondering, you still talking to your buddies that are out there that are actually doing the O three eleven job, all that kind of stuff. Are you talking to any of them or are you staying up to date on anything that's going on? Because this question's gonna lead somewhere. So I'm just asking if you're in touch with any of those guys. Yeah, not really. Um, I think once their op tempo became what it was and my op tempo became what it was, boot camp was just, you know, a thing of the past. And, you know, um, I hate to say it like that, but it's just kind of the way like you lose touch with each other. And, you know, this was early before everybody had quick connect social media and cell phones and, right. you know, every, you know, in mass. I mean, there were cell phones, but not like the communication we had today. Right. And, and I mean more of the question of, you're seeing what's actually going on. You're seeing the fighting. You're seeing guys deploy into combat zones mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. at, at any point. And that's the reason I asked that, not necessarily for the communication of it, but at any point, are you looking like, what the fuck? What is it going to take for me to go do what I said I wanted to go do from the beginning? Do, do you ever reach that point? I think after my Iraq deployment with 3-2 as a squad leader with Lima Company, yes. After that deployment... I, I was just, I was very, uh, you know, the butt hurt would be the common term. Um, because I felt like I got there and then nobody wanted to fight me anymore. You know, like, um, there was always that chase and chase and chase. And then I get into three, two drop into Lima company and then boom, they say we're slotted to go to Al Khan. And I'm like, finally. And then I get there and it's, you know, a couple pop shots, a couple IED blasts pretty much under control. Um, and again, you know, I could fast forward and zoom out and say, thank God, because the command that I had at three, two would not have, would not have cut the mustard in Marja. People would have died on account of their bad mistakes. hundred percent. I know that for a fact. And so, you know, it was another one of those lucky stars or blessings, um, throughout my career that when I had a, a weak command, it was on a weak deployment. Thank God. Um, well, and you look at it, you're there for seven months in Iraq, right? On that deployment, you're there mm -hmm. seven months. Um, a minimum amount of combat. Here's what's interesting, though, when you put this in the book, and, and I'm going to quote you. It says, it just was not as kinetic as I thought or wished it would have. Uh, it would be. 
had I known then what I know now, uh, I would. Mm. So when I look at that and, and, and you say over and over in the book, when people talk to you in interviews on your podcast, I wanted to get into the fight. I wanted to get into the fight. Then you go there and you're like, shit, this is not the fight I want. Then you get Marja later on in your career and you're like, okay, I get it. I understand why everyone is good on their rotation and that you shouldn't ask for this all the time. Let's talk about that mentality because I thought that was a great part of the book. Um, you know, and maybe I'm not like most guys that, that may very well be the case, but, um, Marja, Marja was wild, but it was by far my favorite deployment. Um, I learned more on that deployment than I ever even thought about coming close to learning in any other deployment. Um, but it is a mentality. It's a mentality that says, you, you know, beware what you wish for, because when you get what you wish for, sometimes you get more uh, than you knew came with it. And, and, and in saying, I would never change anything. I would never change anything, but you know, call it a word junkie, call it what it was. That's what I wanted to do. That's what I like to do. Are there things that come along with that um, that have effects on you later in life? Yes, there are. Are there things that are not cool? When you lose Marines, it's not cool. When you're commanding Marines on the battlefield and they die, that's not fun. That's not fun. That is a burden that comes with that leadership, you know? And uh, so for me, when I answer that, it's like, I would tell people afterwards, beware of what you wish for. But if you're the one that's wishing for that, I want you by me because I know, I know what guys are capable of that thrive in that environment. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's strange because after you get a Marja type deployment, you look at the Iraq deployment, the slow one, and you say, you know what? I brought every one of my dudes back from that one, you know, and that's the other side of it is that if I had another one of those, then I wouldn't have lost those, those, those men. And, um, but, but don't you, when you say that, don't you kind of put yourself in the chicken and the egg situation? Because you say, I brought all my guys back from that Iraq deployment. I didn't bring all my guys back from Marja. If I would have had that deployment, I would have brought all those guys back. So we kind of get in an OODA loop there and which one comes first. And does any of that really matter? No, none of that really matters. I just say that I see what you're saying to say, if I knew now what I knew then, then I would have been okay with a slow, a slow, boring deployment. I still needed to get that for me. If I would have never got that, I wouldn't have been complete. And I know that okay. sounds, you know, th that sounds no, the no, way no. that sounds. Um, but I also would be the guy that says, you know, if we're lacing up to go do that again, give me the same guys, I'll go do that again. I'll right. go do that thing again before I would want to go do this other. So it's a very weird, um, I guess I never really talked about it out loud like that with somebody else, but it's a very weird emotion because I don't want to lose people, but there are certain ones of us that my, I loved doing those leading Marines and letting leading Marines do what Marines are supposed to do. Um, leading unchained dogs is, uh, that's, you know, one of the joys of my life. So I might be different than most people. I don't know. Well, here's where it took an interesting turn for me. So, after you do the Lima Company rotation, you got to decide, are you going to stay? Are you going to go? Um, and so you start kind of looking around for things to do. Now, it, when you say you want to get into the fight, 
You went and did that, but then you chose to go to the all Marine Corps boxing team. So it was a weird kind of paradox for me reading it and going, okay, wait a minute. Now you want to get in the fight and you don't know if you want to stick around, but you're going to go do this. So you got to kind of explain your mind state and what you're going through, because I feel like the way you wrote it was you were saying you still wanted to stick around. You just needed a new thing to kind of stoke the fire and get it going again. Well, I mean, so there's multiple things. I wanted that book to be more about the lines of Marja and less about my, uh, you know, Jody story with a wife at home. Um, and so I was married at the time of the three, two deployment that fell apart during the deployment from the, from the, you know, classic Jody story. Um, and so I wasn't in a good headspace coming back from that, trying to get divorced and trying to get all that behind me. And they wanted to work up and go on a mew. And, 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 you know, you might want to say where they wanted to go to. Well, they wanted to go to a, they were going to do a, a, like a, like a booze cruise. They were going to do a float and do nothing, um, is the way I looked at it. Maybe some cool training and now looking back on it from into my career, I really wish I would have went on the float. I never, I never did. I never got on ship. I didn't get to do triple canopy, you know, training, um, like a lot of those guys do. And now I have like that side of me that I feel like I missed, but I didn't want to do that. I was butthurt coming home from Iraq and, and, you know, um, I have a campaign ribbon and no, no combat action, you know, ribbon. Uh, I, you know, I was just, I was ready to get it and then, and then it didn't happen. And so when I came home, I'm like, I don't know what's going on with my personal life. It's falling apart. They want to go on a mew. And so I just, I went out and tried out on the all Marine team. They had flyers around. Um, and I made the team and I told myself I made the team. I would ride that, you know, nine months out with the team or 10 months out with the team. And then it would be time to either reenlist or get out. And I would see kind of what the threat environment looked like at that time. And so that's, you know, that's kind of what I did. I, I boxed and we, we boxed all the way up to Boston and uh, we boxed in New Haven, Connecticut. And I ended up going five and one, five and one or six and one. I can't remember uh, why I was on the team. And, um, and then it came down to like June timeframe. It was time for me to either reenlist or, or get out. And, um, you know, my divorce was, was working through at the time, you know, uh, had the, all the legal side of everything, just kind of waiting on time and, and, uh, there was no real reason to get out. You know, if there ever was a reason to get out, it was because I was trying to salvage a marriage. And then, you know, while I was on the boxing team, figured out that that wasn't going to be a thing. And so then it was full gear back into it, you know, especially with, um, RCT six, getting ready to stand up to go stand down. Iraq would be at the time, which didn't turn out, but, you know, I thought, okay, there's a combat deployment I can get on there. Um, and so I reenlisted, uh, they had the op four bonuses, uh, at the time for Marines operational forces, you know, you get an extra, a little extra dime. And, um, and so I did that. I pulled the trigger, came back over to the, uh, remain behind element for three, two while they were waiting to sort out where I was going to go. And, uh, I think right about this time is when Stanley McChrystal is, you know, asking the president Obama for, um, for a troop increase over in Afghanistan. And, um, you know, I started tracking that as soon as I reenlisted because I knew uh, I would either stay there at six mer- or, you know, at um, uh, at three, two and something would come about after that deployment or something. You know, if I told my monitor, you know, anything that comes up East Coast deploying, I want to get on it. And he just kind of kept that note. So it was like 
maybe three weeks or so after I made that reenlistment that I got a call and said, Hey, you're going over to three, six, you're going to check in, you know, Monday or something. Um, they, they're next in the pipe and you want to deploy, they're going somewhere. Don't know where. And so that's when I, you know, went to check in over at three, six. So let me ask you something and, and it's going to be a little more personal, a little more Dr. Freudian, but I, I got to go back to it for a minute. Okay. You come back from this deployment that you're in all essence pissed about. Your marriage is falling apart for whatever reason. We don't need to get into that. You really have no control over your professional life, your private life. Everything is just kind of a blur. Mm. You got to put me in your headspace at that time. Are you drinking? Are you angry? Are you what? Because it seems so strange to me that you went to the boxing because that seems to me the only thing that would give you complete control over what you're doing, training, boxing, fighting, it's all on you and mm. it's all for you to take charge of. Maybe, I mean, maybe it comes off like that, but really it was just, you know, get home, not, not sure where, where I'm at in my relationship. Um, I know she can't do deployments anymore if we stay together. Uh, so that would mean maybe I have to exit if I'm thinking that. And, um, and yeah, I really just, I was really pissed. I think it came more, more of like that. I had fought and fought and fought and fought and fought to get into Iraq and go get some. And then I get there and it was nothing to be got. Um, my command was really, like I said, my command was really weak. I had a weak platoon sergeant and a weak lieutenant. Um, and, you know, I learned a lot from them. That's another one of those blessings. I learned what not to be from that platoon sergeant. And I learned what not to let happen with my lieutenants in the future. And, um, you know, as best as I could imprint on them or change them, then I learned, you know, what bad ones look like. And, and, um, so bad command, bad personal life coming home, not sure if there's going to be another big surge of anywhere. And it was just, you know, I, I had always boxed. I, I like to fight and at least, you know, I could fight somebody, <laughs> you know, that I was, I was going to be able to fight. I would fight. Yeah, and, and that, uh, that's and, my point. You can't so fight maybe the wife. You can't fight the Marine Corps. This is yeah. the only person that you can get in a ring, literally, and fight. And, you know, maybe that was it. I don't know what it was. Or maybe it was just that I was pissed off that afternoon, and I seen a flyer on the barracks wall, and I said, I'll go try out for that, and then I made it. Um, I don't think it can be that trivial. Not with how you <laughs> talk about the rest of your I, – I really don't think it can be that maybe trivial, not. though. There has to be – I would think with you there has to be – some afterthought and, and forethought involved both of them looking long-term on it. I wanted to fight. I know that. And I didn't get to fight where I want, where, you know, where I got sent. So that did let me fight. It did let me fight for the Marine Corps. Um, um, and it did maybe, you know, now that you say it, maybe it did give me a sense of control when I felt like I had absolutely zero control over anything. And, uh, I, I mean, it's a very good possibility. I can't say that I had that forethought at the time. Uh, maybe more instinctual, but, um, but yeah, I'm not, I, I, I don't know. I seen a flyer. I said, I don't want to go on a float. I just did a combat non-combat deployment, uh, and, and just not what I wanted. Does it at any point, and, and this is kind of the last we'll talk about the ex-wife, but at any point in this, when you're, you're training, you're with the, the boxing team, does it get better? Does it look like it's getting any better? Or is it, is it a, a, you know, a foregone conclusion? Yeah, it's done. It was done. 
it, it was just, uh, you know, like I said, just time, you know, paying those checks out month by month, by month waiting on the right month to come up to where it could be over. Um, and um, so it, it never got, you know, never got better. Matter of fact, I think, you know, she continued to move on um, over and over. And then, you know, I moved on and it was just a thing of the past. You know, it was a short, uh, short little, you know, young Marine marriage you know the type that you hear about <laughs> so it, but a serious question to that did it teach you anything oh did for it sure. work towards later on oh for sure yeah another one of those you know things i look at all my failures and my mistakes as blessings because it just let me go into the next opportunity with essay this time <laughs> so uh yeah it, it definitely helped out all right so let's move you over to three six kind of go from there now we have a lot to talk about because this is mainly the focus of the book but we need to hop around a lot in it so um september 17th 2009 you check in uh Bad late your first day probably not a <laughs> probably not a great way to check in i'm guessing to an infantry marine corps unit yes yeah, not ideal um you know, it was one of those things where we were going to check in as a group and there was, uh, you know, like five of us and we we're going to, we we're going to be a team. We we're going to be an element. And then one of us decided we didn't want to be on time that morning. And I'm not going to say which one of us that was, it wasn't me. Uh, but Hey, that's my boys. And, um, yeah, we, we took the ass chewing together. We, we met, uh, we met the company gunny in, in tight fashion and, um, and we got reminded about, you know, how 15 minutes early is on time and on time is late and, um, you know, properly introduced to our new company gunnery sergeant, which was, uh, which was awesome. Uh, when you do that, you're there September. So we're looking October, November, December 2nd, 2009, Obama says he's going to order 30,000 troops with a clear military mission. Are you thinking, fuck i finally made it we're here this is what's gonna happen now do you ever think that or are you really in the back of your head going son of a bitch well um you know he you know the way it, the way it turned out was was super weird so when i got to the when i got to the uh to three six the sergeant major was gone so there was a couple of months there of, of limbo with me and the other five you know or six marines <coughs> excuse me that checked in together and uh, we were doing mainly stuff like your analysis and PP watching and stuff like that because we're just extra NCOs at this point. And then when he got back, we got dropped into our companies. When I got dropped into my company was just shortly before that happened. And when I got dropped into my company, there were already three squad leaders for all the squads. There was a guy, you know, an older guy. And, you know, they're training up to do this uh, Okinawa, I think, was what was on the slate. And um, and then when that troop increase, you know, came and they'd already been the CACs, they'd already worked up. This is another beautiful thing that was overlooked, maybe even in the writing of my book, is that I come late. These guys are trained. These guys have been operating on a, on a full workup for like 14 months or something like that at this point. And then I come in. And the, the reason I slide in is because you have a couple of short time sergeants that were good to go on a okinawa deployment and then when the okinawa deployment turned into a main invasion of marja um you know there might have been some different feelings about what you know deployments wanted to go and and, and you know what uh what people had left on their contracts and things of that nature and so you had a couple of squad leader uh positions open up and so i slide into second platoon 
So I slide into second platoon in like September or October and we deploy January three, January two or January three. Like I'm still trying to learn my guys' names. I got one field op with them, which was just a KD range uh, to, to get battle zeros on our, you know, on our rifles. And so that, that sets a different dynamic than, you know, the three, two command that I had worked all the way up with, you know, um, and went to CACs and these things. I just had to hope that these guys had good training slide in, you know, manage what I needed to manage until I figured the the squad out and then we could really cut loose, which happened later. But, um, not to cut you off, but did that make you nervous? Because you talk so many times about that three, two unit and the command and, and how they couldn't, if a big thing would have happened, that's gotta be on your mind the whole time you're working up and not really getting to work up. Yeah. Um, there was, a so, so checking in, there was just not time to think about that. I guess it was, it, it was so it was like check in, boom, drop in. Hey, you got the helo dunker, a KD range. And then boom. Hey, by the way, we just got moved into this slot. You're now taking second squad. And so there just wasn't time to think about it. And here's the other thing, like the leadership in, in three, six and kilo company was so much better than any of my other, uh, uh, commands, uh, in the fleet, especially that it was just noticeable. Like when I fell in on these guys, I'm like, this is this, this fucking element is wired tight. Like these guys, it, you know, I can, I can work with this. Um, and, and the command structure was awesome. My, uh, staff Sergeant Joe Wright was awesome, uh, to have somebody take you in. He's the old man, you know, classic old man platoon Sergeant. Um, and I learned many, many things from him, from, you know, Gordon Emanuel was, was, was my lieutenant, who was an amazing dude, you know, the same age as me and on a different level of uh, strategic wizardry. Um, and so I just fell in on great guys and I had good, you know, good team leaders, you know, that belonged to me, my squad, uh, the other squad leaders, you know, so I fell in on good guys and I never, I never thought about that. I just thought about, okay, you know, it is what it is. And we'll fix it on the way if we have to fix it, you know, but we don't have time to sit and dwell on it. This is it. This is the team and we're leaving soon. All right. So you say you fall in with this group and um, there was a couple points in the book where you talk about it, where uh, the lieutenant comes and he talks to you and he gives you his expectations right up front. Uh, He's very uh, direct, very blunt is how you describe him. And you say that you'll come to respect him a ton, uh, you know, throughout your career and later on. But I can't help but feel when you wrote that, that it hadn't been like that before. So when you say you fell in to this, how does it feel to fall into something like that? Because if if it would have been another bad, I mean, how are we talking about your career? Yeah, who knows, right? Uh, so for me, I don't know. Um, I fell in, like I told you, I fell into the platoon and you know, just happened to be that, you know, this sergeant squad leader and that sergeant squad leader were departing. And so I took over for second squad and got my expectations brief, you know, straight up front from, from my Lieutenant. He was actually, when I checked in, he was at mountain mountain leaders course. Um, and when he came back, you know, first thing he did brought me in, Hey, this is what I expect of you. This is what I expect of a squad leader of, you know, in my platoon, you've missed the entire workup. So you have some proven to do, which I knew that you coming into, you can't come in thinking you're going to be, you know, uh, the main effort right out the jump. Um, but my job was to be there and facilitate, you know, the squad in any way that he, he deemed fit. And, um, 
And then he asked, you know, what my expectations were from him, which was something that I found, you know, interesting from officer to enlisted guy. And, you know, so I gave him my expectations, you know, you know, of putting the men before anything um, and ensuring that, you know, we we operated good, good together. And it was, you know, it was brief, but it was nice. It was professional, um, very squared away. When I spoke with him, I could tell that, you know, there was a you know man of character. Um, and then he just proved me right for the last, you know, decade plus. Uh, so, well, it's funny when, when you talk about when you replace the guys, you know, that there were some guys on the bubble kind of deciding where they were going to go. Now, when you were with three, two, uh, didn't you replace someone like two guys got hot piss tests and they got just kind of bumped. And mm. so it's so funny to watch how everything happens where, and that's correct, right? They had like hot piss tests and they in they fast bumps, so they had to new. Yeah. In fast company, there was too hot. And so I got bumped up into the senior platoon. That was amazing command. And then, yeah. And then these guys jump, you know, you know, and, and more power to them. They had things going on in their life. They didn't, you know, want to make that deployment. I have no ill will towards them. Um, but, but it's I gotta to, feel good having that leadership with. throughout your whole career. You always were, whether by luck, by chance, or by doing the right things, you were always given that opportunity to lead. I'm blessed, man. I mean, I think the Marine Corps makes a point of that. That's why we're so good. We understand decentralized chains of command, and we understand that these are team squad, uh, team and squad level fights that we're in these days. These are not big platoon and company sized movements, and so you have to, from a very young age, as a Marine. Um, you have to develop yourself and, 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 and any leader worth his salt in the Marine Corps, any NCO is, is trying to have, you know, uh, if you're a squad leader, I used to tell this, you know, to my younger guys, I would rather have three fire breathing corporal team leaders chomping at the bit to take my job, uh, than three that just didn't care, but I had job security. I want those pit bulls on my heels, making me keep my shit sharp. Because then when it comes down, you just got nothing but but animals, you know, all on the same team. And um, and so that's the way I liked it. I don't, I don't know where I was going with that. Well, you talk a lot about leadership. I know where we can go from it. You talk a lot about leadership on the podcast and the book and stuff like that. Let's talk about, you say it over and over again, pit bulls on chains, dogs that want to get in the fight. At a certain point, that could be either a dangerous thing or something. How do you as a leader control that and keep that right underneath the surface ready to go at a moment's notice i mean i think uh in the marine corps it's kind of easy and i like the you know the philosophy i of i'd rather pull them back than push them forward i want you to pull me forward and as i'm trying to stop you i want you still pulling me forward because i need at that moment's notice when i say now i need you to do now i don't need you to guess and think and some of that happened um some of the guessing and thinking happened later on. And, and I'll be honest with you, it really just depends on the time, um, the kinetics of the fight at the time, uh, the atmospherics would, would, would determine a lot of things uh, of how I would, you know, you know, poise the Marines. But my hat's off to my guys. You know, my guys, I never had to, I never really had to push. And there were a couple of days, you know, there were times that were scary, no doubt. I mean, we had several, several, several situations that, you know, in that, in that seven, eight months that were very dicey and my guys operated like, like professionals. Um, so, uh, there, there was one time that, um, 
specifically towards the end of the deployment. I don't know if I talk about it in the book, maybe I do, but I had one of my younger guys, we had, we had gotten a boot drop right before we left, like maybe 10 days before we left. And this is one of those kids and we're up on a roof and, um, we had somebody spotting us and, and, you know, controlling Taliban, uh, troops against us. Uh, but other than the phone, he was not armed. And at that time, any passive or active spotting that was, you know, confirmed to be seen that cleared you hot because they're they're controlling other teams and so i remember looking at him and 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 a big shout out to to dave grossman in the marine corps system for having the you know the commandant's reading list and 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 the different um educational tools that they drive uh to get guys to read this stuff but dave grossman's book on killing uh and his other one on combat he's got several but both of those on combat and on killing were you know, assigned readings and, and, and expected mandatory readings for NCOs. And I took advantage of those, um, of those readings and, uh, had read that book probably three times, the, the, the pair of them probably two or three times before Marja. And then on that roof, on that day, I looked at that kid, you know, with a saw and I said, hit him, dude, he's, he's spot and hit him. We're cleared. And he just looked back at me with that. Are you sure? Just that look that he wasn't sure. And I didn't, you know, I never asked him to hit that guy again. You know, I pulled up, I put the dude down, you know, I tapped his Kevlar, ain't no big deal, and walked away. But that book made me think, like that situation at that time made me think about that book. Like, don't make this kid do something that in his heart he's not believing in right now. Because he's fought this whole time. He's pulled the trigger. But on this one, he in his mind does not understand why you told him to do that. So now you need to do that. And so I was always thankful for, um, for, you know, for that experience with that book. And, and now I try to drive that point home to, you know, the hitters that are out there now is like, Hey, you need to be reading this stuff. There's, it's not just like they're picking on you. This is going to help you understand yourself when things start coming undone. And so, uh, you know, that was a time I had to push. Um, and I rather just push myself in a situation like that than push, you know, into a bad spot for one of my junior guys. So, okay. So uh, let's talk about that. Do you ever talk to that guy after that and just say, you said he fought the whole time. Like what was going on? Did you ever pull him aside and do that? No, I didn't or did feel you like even were, care. I didn't feel like, no, I didn't care. I didn't feel like there was a reason to ask him on that time. He decided that he wanted to shoot me some, you know, some eyes that weren't sure. And if he wasn't sure, he wasn't sure that guy, you know, to me, that guy still has to go down. And if I got to put him down, I got to put him down. I understand the higher purpose. And sometimes when you're all the way zoomed in and you're a PFC and you have no idea why you're on this route, you know, seven months after getting out of SOI, you're trying to figure things out still. And um, I just never thought about it again. I never, I never brought it up. He never brought it up. It, it just wasn't a big deal. I feel like continuing to bring it up would be, you know, um, uh, I just don't think it would have accomplished anything other than maybe make him feel bad for not doing it. And there was no reason for that. So let me play devil's advocate with you for a minute. When you say that, when you say you're a PFC and you're down there in the weeds and you don't know why you're there seven months out of getting out of SOI. Okay. This is what they say about law enforcement and they say it about the military a lot. And it's a very simple answer and it's never really set well. You're there because that's what you signed up for. That's why you're there. That's why you have to do it. And that is such a basic answer to me. I want to get your thoughts on that because that's what a lot of people say. Well, you're there. That's what you're supposed to do. You told him to fire. That's his job. Fire. 
Yeah, I just don't see it like that. Um, and anybody I think that's been in a real kinetic fight, gunfight, I don't think would see it like that at the end of the day either. Um, this is seven months in when I know my guys like the back of their hand. I know when they're sick by looking at them because their shade is off. This is when, uh, you know, I've watched this kid in, 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 in combat be a lion, you know, and pull that saw up and not have a problem. But in a situation where I give him a command to fire on an unarmed personnel and then he looks at me funny, I understand that I have hostile act and hostile intent. His mind might not have said that, and I don't care. I eliminated the target. They stopped moving on us. They were in, in enough set. Um, for the people that say, well, that's what he signed up for, then I would say, well, then I challenge you to come fight alongside me for seven and a half months and, and, play, and, 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 and not have one fuck up or not have one moral dilemma inside your mind in a split second to where you just weren't sure. Cause I guarantee you, I told that kid to fire a second time. He just striped him. He to ran him up. It just wasn't necessary. In my opinion. I, I, I think that's an excellent answer to it. And I know you have to know that. I know you have to have heard the, the, the Monday morning quarterbacks, the people that are out there that have never, you know, taken that oath or anything like that saying that, and it's a great way that you say it. I challenge you to do it because a lot of the answer that you'll get is, nah, I don't want to. Yeah, I didn't sign up for it. Okay, well then. <laughs> exactly. Then sit there because you didn't and you weren't there. You know, you're not. It's, um, I, I refer to my Marines as national treasures. And I have for some time now. I got to lead the nation's national treasures. And what did, you know, what do you lead? What do you do on a daily basis? Um you know, these, these people that throw these comments out there, that's what they signed up for. You know, like sometimes when you sign the contract though, it doesn't say you watch your friend get turned into a pink mist by a 50 pound jug of ammonium nitrate and aluminum. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say you have to carry your best friend to a chopper while he bleeds out on your shoulder. It doesn't tell you that. You know inherently that they may be a possibility because you're going to war, but the specific things that then you take into your cognitive thoughts of war and your cognitive memories of war those are things that nobody ever asked for you yeah. see what i'm saying it's yeah, not absolutely. what we wanted to happen and at the end of the day are they possible anything's possible when you got machines of war going at you at each other but when you say well that's what you signed up for actually no it's not what i signed up for was to bring all of my guys home that's what i signed up for unmaimed and unhurt psychologically yeah. or otherwise that's what i signed up for just turns out that that didn't happen this time and we have to we have to flex off that you know well i'm glad you brought that up because that's something i definitely wanted to talk to you about when you talk about that's what you signed up for to bring all your guys home uh there's a couple different points in the book one you're talking about loading up into the birds and all you can think in your mind is get these guys off fast get them off safe get them off fast mm -hmm. That's one moment that I think about it that you really rely and 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 you can tell by the way you write this book that you truly care about these guys. Mm. But the point that I want to talk about is when you have to talk to a father about bringing people home, bringing sons home. How old are you at this point? 23 23 23 years old. You got a father telling you that's a lot of weight to put in your rucksack and carry. Bring my son home. Bring that guy home. You can't promise that. You know you can't promise that. So how do you approach that situation? Mm. 
you know, I probably handled it poorly. Uh, I don't know how everybody else handles it. I, I'm a guy that, um, especially post margin, but even before that, I'm an emotional guy. I'm a, uh, I'm a guy that I don't mind showing my emotions. If I'm sad, I don't mind, you know, if I'm, I don't ever get scared, but I get anxious. So sometimes that'll show. And I know that day, you know, was with the day we were leaving. We were, you know, getting ready to deploy and everybody's down there in the parking lots, you know, saying their goodbyes. And I would make a point of it to, to say my goodbyes to my wife well before everybody's time to lead up, you know, load up. I didn't, you know, I don't need my own bullshit in the way that all their bullshit's already in their way. You know, somebody I, I want you to, to I want you to tie on to that, though, because we're coming back. We're going to circle back to that. Okay. You know, it's just a lot of emotions when you're leaving, especially when you're leaving, you know, on a deployment that you now know you're going to be doing, you know, a helo born invasion on, you know, a, a pretty kinetic, you know, portion of land would be um, from the best reports that they could have. You know, it, you know, guys are hugging their families for maybe the last time and, you know, girlfriends. And um, and then you got the single guys that are just, you know, wild, wild, man, just wide open running through the, you know, the barracks. And so there's that, that fun part of it. But for me is like, okay, it's time to go guys. My, you know, my, uh, my family is gone and made my way to the parking lot and I'm, you know, getting the guys that's loaded up, you know, f trying to get my last ones. And uh, Travis Vocolo's, you know, father standing out there, little short guy, just like Travis. And this guy's like a two tour Vietnam vet, just, just harder than woodpecker lips. And, uh, and I'm like, Travis, you good? He's like, yep. So he goes into like lean into like hug his dad, maybe for the last time. Um, and his dad like stiff arms him cold and like shakes his hand and says, kill him good. And turns around, looks at me, shakes my head, said, bring him home one way or another, turns around and leaves. And I'm standing there like, my lip is quivering. I'm trying to, you know, make a promise that I don't know if I can fulfill. And it was just, uh, it was just one of those moments. It was something you see in a, you know, in a movie. Um, and that stuck with me because then, you know, uh, his son is going to be the first guy in my squad that ends up getting hit, um, you know, going into the push, but it's a, um, it's, it's an experience, man. You, Dealing with parents is, is something that I've never gotten good at, um, both before and after. It's just, you know, I can never now as a father, I just can't imagine looking at a 24 year old me and saying, I, you know, I'm putting my faith in you. I can't imagine doing it um, with my children. So it's one of those parts of the job that you do in the beginning and you do in the end. And hopefully the one in the end is smiles because it, well, it gets very complicated after that. And the reason I bring it up, the first point of it is you're 23 years old what are you going to tell this guy you've right. been to combat non-combat you know what you're going into it's probably going to be worse than the time before you know this guy has done his time what do you tell this guy i, I mean, think my job at that point is to do exactly what i say and say yes sir i will i will bring him home one way or another and then i need to use that as motivation to bring him home one way or another you can't what else can you do exactly if you but look here's scared my question. and you hesitate then that Vietnam veteran is going to eat you up right there before you leave. Yep. Um, if you look confident and you say, we got him, sir, no problem. Then he's going to go home better that night, regardless Absolutely. of how I actually feel inside me. That's not, but I actually felt that like, yeah, I'm going to get them. They're coming home. You know, that's how I felt. And if you don't feel like that going to, into a deployment, then you should um, like, you should recuse yourself and say, I, 
you know, I don't feel like I can bring everybody home. Somebody else needs to take my spot. That would be the honorable thing to do. So let's rotate. I said I want to circle back to it. You have your family leave before anyone gets there because you said by your own words, and you say it in the book, you don't need your own bullshit there. Nope. But we just talked about that father that's saying, bring my son home. You've got your family that wants you to come home. And they're leaving before anyone else, and you're having to get your stuff. The question that I'm trying to go around to is, I don't want to say is it fair to them, but they're just as concerned as those other people. Do you think at any point that more time should have been spent with them? More time explaining? More, do you understand what I'm getting at? Do you mean with my family? Yes. Um, so my family consisted of my wife at the time, uh, newlywed, second wife, um, best wife, still with her, light of my life, mother of my children. Um, and at that time we had no kids and man, the way I see it is, uh, you know, even at that same time when the job comes and there's a job to do, I flip a switch and, you know, that would have been made my fifth deployment. I had been in the in and out rotations before and it was like, um, you know, it was just a thing to me. It was like, Hey, you leave a little bit earlier. My guys are going to have some clouds in their eyes and stuff, you know, so give me a hug, you know, let's do the crying thing out of sight. And then she would get under her way and, um, you know, surely if I had kids at the time, I would have, I would have spent more times, you know, with my kids, but to a point, and then I would have to let them get away, get myself together so that I can go handle, you know, my guys. Okay. And so I don't know that I would have done it much, much different. Um, I definitely spent tons of time on leave and, and leading up to that day with, you know, with my wife, um, best we could, you know, prior to, to, to leaving. But, um, um, at the time it was, when I woke up that morning, I flipped the switch in my head, you know, boom, it's on. And, you know, now you need to go because I need to go do this thing. And my wife understood, you know, even though that was her first deployment, uh, my wife understood that I have to go somewhere else to do my job. Not, not, not physically in my head. I have to go to another place to do my job properly. And that other place does not have you in it. You're not in that other place. You're in this other place back at home, this reality where I'm going. Communication with you is bad for me. Thinking about you is bad for me. So I have to go to this other place. And so, you know, after enough practice, you can learn, you know, how to flip that. I think, um, at least flip it on, flipping it off is, is tricky, but flipping it on is, um, a little easier. All right. So let's talk about that. Five deployments in How's your mental health. You know, I would say at the time I was great hundred percent. Um, I hadn't lost anybody. Um, I had no reason to have any kind of, uh, you know, cognitive, um, issues. I'd never been blown up. Um, you know, outside of just regular training, uh, you know, detonations and things of that nature. So I was good there. I was square. I was in a, you know, a decent relationship and marriage at the point. And I, I mean, going into it, I was good. How's your body? Um, I would say I was probably could have been in better shape. I know uh, the boxing team gets you in good shape, and don't get me wrong, I was fighting at like 172 pounds. I was chiseled down uh, to, to to next to no fat, but coming back off RBE after that, I didn't you know get back into marine fighting shape the way I should have. Um, it's different kind of it's a different kind of shape. Um, so maybe I was. Um, 
could have been in better shape. But outside of that, I was no injuries. I had no, um, nothing wrong with me. I was not sick. Um, get sick a whole lot. So I just felt good. I, I, and I, my headspace was good. My body was good. Um, I felt ready. Felt good. Okay. So we roll in February 12th. You're supposed to mission set to start. You're held off until the 13th. When that initial hold off happens from the 12th to the 13th, what are your thoughts on it? And do you think here we go again? Yeah, I don't know if they just trying to piss us off or, you know, there were some rumors that, that a bus wrecked and, um, you know, looking back on it now, it's like you had like close to a hundred aircrafts coordinated on a night. Like clearly we just got the wrong night. We thought it was the wrong night is what I think, you know, there's, there's all kinds of, <laughs> there's all kinds of rumors about why it may have been held off or, uh, whatnot, but I don't know. Um, never got a straight answer from that on anybody. Um, I, you know, I learned some hard lessons that night. I talk about in the book how I you know, thought we were going in. So everything was geared up and everything was palletized that we didn't need, which was all of our warming layers and such. And so I had covered up with my tarp, my poncho liner tarp that night, and it doesn't <laughs> breathe. And so all my condensation ended up on my tarp and then dripping back down all over me that night. And so I woke up the morning that we actually pushed soaking wet, um, soaking wet battle fatigues and, um, so, you know, learn a lesson that night, but, um, but we didn't deploy until the next night. We didn't actually make our way to the airfield to the next night. Can you put us in your mind state going in? <sighs> um, you know, for that whole month of shaping, it was just, you know, constant cast nine lines, uh, constant call for fire, nine lines practicing over and over, um, introducing myself to HIMAR rockets through the, through the fires officers and, and, and understanding what I had, at, you know, at our, what, what abilities, what assets we were going to be able to have. Um, and you know, there was a lot of reports coming in from the other companies and, and other units that were shaping Marja kind of for our insert. And all those reports were, were, were suggesting that it was going to be hot and it was going to be spicy. And so, um, my mindset was just, uh, locked in like let's get after it my guys on and off drills with tourniquets you know call for fires jtac you know i'm jfo certified corporal charrette the co-host of the show uh choices not chances show he's my apl in in uh in marja just spinning up getting ready and you know um we were at dwyer and then they moved us back to leatherneck to you know to invade out of leatherneck and um we, we ran this one last little range, popped everybody's cherry, you know, as far as getting, getting dopes in. And we worked with our ANA guys. We used APOBs, we used RPGs and just broke everybody in, in this range. And then, um, you know, we had like one more meeting as a platoon where we got our heads right. And everybody just kind of understood that, Hey, it's us, you know, it's us from here out. Had that false flag that first night on the, you know, on the 12th and then the 13th, you know, I don't know, sometime around one one o'clock one thirty in the morning something like that we start making our way up to the airfield on on leatherneck there and uh you know a lot of it's a blur but i just i've never seen that many aircraft on an airfield before um i've never seen you know i've never been in helicopters that are in battle formation flying you know blacked out in battle formation <laughs> so many things that uh were so badass about that night um that I probably couldn't put into words correctly in the book, but it was amazing. You walk up and you see all these, you know, birds and all just all kinds of different birds. Um, 
and then you know everybody's chalked out and lined out in their chalks and you get the go ahead now you're running out to the bird and everybody's getting in and doing the scooch and you know i was second off my birds so it was like i was the last one on next to my platoon sergeant he gets on and you know what was really weird they had, had pre-flight checks that seemed like they took forever they would lift up and then come down and then turn and then turn the other way and then lift up and then come down and as you're looking out the tailgate every other bird is doing the exact same checks at the exact same time just this system of uh, making sure everything was ready to go and it was amazing and then i remember you know eventually you know as we went up there was no more up and down checks it was we continued to climb and then we just watched the lights of leathernecks start to fade you know into the into the landscape and i remember at that time it was like that's when it hit me okay we're doing this this is time to you know time to get your head all the way right and i you know i looked out and i i remember thinking to myself it was almost a you know one of the most beautiful things i'd ever seen and maybe that was because you know i you know i was on some kind of you know pre-combat high where everything to me seemed peaceful and beautiful but when i looked out i could see millions more stars than ever i could see the mountains in the distance it felt like and you know just the the the, the land just seemed scattered with lights you know you fly over the united states and everything's lit up and you fly over afghanistan you might see a light here and there you know just every once in a while and it was just uh it was peaceful and um and it was peaceful all the way until we came into zone and then it wasn't peaceful anymore. It's a little bit more chaotic. So, um, so my head was let, clear. Let's roll right into that. You, you, you're in this euphoric state in the back. And it, it, I, that's the only thing I can call it is euphoric state where you, you've got this romantic look at war and then mm. all of a sudden, boom, it changes in an instant. Yeah, it's in there. Um, I remember as we started to come down, there was tons of debris in the air and VGs were on, told the guys lace up. We locked and loaded. Everybody's ready. I remember I'm sitting on the edge of my seat. She couldn't really stand up. We had hundred pound, 115 pound day packs full of ammo, um, and, and different and different ordnance and you know fibers for mortars and small rockets. I mean, everybody was just loaded down, and uh, you know we come down and we sit down and I still, as, as we sat down, I seen all this shit in the air and I'm like, what is this? I just didn't get it. And as soon as I stepped off the bird, I got it. And we were in a flooded poppy field. And I mean, flooded, flooded. And my first step coming off that, you know, that gate, that, that choppers got like a two foot, you know, gate. And I came off that and went like damn near to my, to my kneecaps. And then everybody coming out behind you, because we had this sexy idea of on off, secure the perimeter. Everybody's good <laughs> because that's how it's supposed to go. Right. And that's how we've trained it all week. And then Murphy was in the, in the field with some water and, um, and we had a dog pile of 50 submarine chalk that was stacked up on each other, four or five weapons that were clean enough to operate. Um, and the, and the bitch of it was that if that uh, army pilot would have skidded forward 20 more feet, stopped 20 feet short or went left or right 20 feet, you know, from, from the center of that hole was dry land. It was just flooded in that area, right where we needed to go. And so, you know, that didn't start out swell. Everybody's, you know, flopping around and trying not to get, you know, eaten. It was almost like, um, like one guy I talk about in the book, Travis Vocolo, the guy from, you know, leaving that day with his dad, he was pack first down and everything was under mud 
except from like maybe a little bit of his name tapes and like his knees. He was literally sinking and he had to have other Marines pull him up and it took his pack that had a small rocket on it. And, um, and we came back out and tried to find the, the pack later and it just, the earth ate it. And so that's the dire straits that we were kind of facing at that time. And then, um, as we're trying to unfuck this situation, you know, and get metal detectors out so that we can start sweeping up to our, to our foothold compound, um, you know, AC 130 gunship in the sky is circling around, dropping IR canisters. It, it, it rogers down to us and says, Hey, you've got an enemy element platoon size closing on Moving you from the North, you. Yep. you know, prepare to defend yourself. And that was on blast. And so, you know, we had a young Lieutenant scream something to the order of we're all going to fucking die. At which point two Bravo, you know, my platoon Sergeant swiftly slapped almost the taste right out of his mouth and, um, and told him to be quiet. Uh, uh, you know, more abruptly than be quiet. And, um, I think he and said, we start, shut the fuck up. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure he said, shut the fuck up, sir. Yeah. And, um, and he did, he shut the fuck up and we started to <laughs> ca- kind of get, get our composure back and you could look out there in the, in the nods and you could see him coming RPGs up machine guns look like our weapons. And, uh, so we ginned up a, uh, we ginned up a mission for skids and brought Cobra. I think it was a Cobra Cobra gun gunship section over top of us. And, you know, just before these guys come in and we're about to lay this whole platoon out. And, uh, as they're pushing from their IP, we have to abort because one of the point men's IR flicker starts going off on a chest of the point man, uh, coming towards us of this enemy element. And it turned out that the Blackhawk dropping some of our ANA dropped them to the North of us. And they forgot to turn on their, IR, uh, their IR strobe. Um, strobe light on on their approach, which was something they were repeatedly told to make sure they did. First thing was to turn that thing on, um, and so you know, just like again out of the movies, aboard, aboard, aboard. The choppers, wow, and then back up to their to their holding positions, and then you look around the you look around the field, you shake your head and look at your guys like, oh my god, minute one, crisis averted. All right get your shit together. We still got to go. Like it's not over. This is, this is just the first 15 minutes. Okay. So a perfect way to segue. This is the first 15 minutes of combat, combat, not combat, non-combat. Cause <laughs> really, it, we, we, it really is. Shit was about to get real. You've wanted it for your whole career. Are you thinking, is this where it kind of kicks in? You go, wow, be careful what you wish for. You know, that never kicked in. Uh, unfortunately, I know that I know that at some point you, you know, it seems like it should have, and it never did. I felt like I was right where I was supposed to be. So it was just like, you know, try to learn from staff sergeant and, uh, and some of the other sergeants as much corporals, anybody I could learn from, learn from them. And other than that, put the training that I've had for the past, you know, eight years to use and, you know, just, just, just press on. And so it wasn't hard. It was just, I knew where my foothold building was. I had it marked out. I could see it. It was a matter of getting the guys squared away, getting a metal detector up front and let's push on and let's, you know, execute this plan. We all know our parts. Uh, we didn't plan to start this way, but damn it, that's what we got dealt. So we need to, we need to brush it off. You know, a lot of the things I brush over maybe is that it was cold as, it was cold as shit that night. It was like 30 something degrees, 38, 30, you know, nine, 40 degrees, something. And yeah, now all of my wet. Marines, you know, now exactly. Now all my Marines are soaking wet and in 39 degrees and scared. And, you know, I, I don't think I, you know, maybe I didn't press a 
upon that in the book and enough like the elements can beat you down if you're not prepared and sometimes even if you are so so yeah we pressed on and moved up and we got to our foothold there happened to be a uh you know a uh a, a, a well you know a freshwater well there which was awesome because we needed to punch bores and clean all the you know all this mud off of a bunch of weapon systems and um you know by the time we got that going we started a fire for some of the guys that were colder uh the sun was starting to come up then and um from our foothold building you know it was everything you don't want to see it was an ied in open plain sight on the on the land bridge that we have to cross with a command wire running into our neighbor building uh into its front door which is literally like hand grenade distance away from you know from us and um you know at, at some point right there early in the morning we knew we would have to cross that bridge um literally yeah, we had talked about it. We, you know, this is where we're crossing. Um, and, and it has to, you know, we have to make sure that that IED is neutralized. And so, uh, E-Man, my lieutenant called up, you know, they get some APOBs out here. And so we moved some APOBs out. And as we were setting the APOB pack up, um, and that's just a, that's a uh, obstacle breaching uh, systems, a bunch of grenades in, in a line. They shoot, shoots out with a little rocket, lays on where you want it to lay, and then boom, they all blow up creates a little path for you to walk in the idea was to shoot it over and then sympathetically detonate any ids that were near that jug as secondaries or whatnot and as we begin to set it up that's when you know the opening shots of operation mosh Tarak, you know pierce the air i guess you could say and they were just kind of waiting on us to 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 I don't know what they were waiting on. The sun had been up for about an hour. Nobody fired at us. I think they were just trying to move their plate, move their guys into place. And then while we were out there exposed with that APOB system, originally they, they opened fire and uh, they opened fire from our North where we landed. And then it was on after that, you know, the machine guns open up and return fire. Um, I grabbed my security team that I had with me and we ran back into you know, the compound that we had. And there was like this um, little step of poppy stems that led up right to the, uh, I guess that'd be like the northwest corner of the compound my guys were holding in. I ran right up those stems and came up, and I had a uh, a corporal, corporal simmering on the saw, one of my guys with me. And as I got up there, I'm kind of scanning, 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 and I, I pick up the two enemy fighters running through this little ditch line, this little tree line to the north. And if you follow that up like 800 meters, there's another compound up there with a bunch of guys with black dish dashes and what looks to be um, mortars or, or RPGs. We don't know what they have. And so instantly I pull up and I let a couple of go, you know, a couple of rounds go wop, wop. And I watch him hit at the fighter's feet. I thought he was about 300 and I was wrong. He's about 400. Watch the dust blow up. Well, they stopped when those, like those two rounds, pap, pap, hit the sand. Those guys stopped and looked over and I just pulled up my 400 you know, and boom, boom, let a couple more fly. Boom. That hit the one guy in the back. He kind of goes down and I'm shooting tracers because I'm trying to mark for my squad. So as soon as those tracers hit that guy and he piles over simmering on the saw and a couple other guys open fire and take out his buddy, uh, in the tree line. And then, um, you know that, I mean, it, it goes on and on from there, but I adjusted some mortars onto the, onto the building in the back that they were running to. I don't think we ended up getting a good fire for effect on the building, but we got real close um, and there were some other things, you know, happening now air, you know, fixed wing aircraft are coming in to drop 500 pound J dams up, you know, for somebody else in the platoon and company over here um, because it's kind of a company spearheaded fight coming into that area. And so, um, 
it was a wild opening. I mean, it, it was sun up to sundown until we finally got over, you know, consolidated at the company, uh, at the company position on night one. With you saying that, I want to read another thing from your book to you. You talk about that this opened up first morning, hour of sunlight in, you're rocking and rolling the very first day, the whole day until night. You say your number one and most important tool or weapon in a fight is your mind. And then you skip down another paragraph and you say the Taliban 20-year-old is far more experienced than a Marine 20-year-old, especially in terms of what they believe the world is. For a 20-year-old Taliban soldier, death is common and gore is welcomed. Now, a lot of people talk about that we were a far superior force over there, but I want you to talk about that mind state because we've already mentioned it. Your guys are cold. You, you landed in water. They're scared. It's their first. Let's go over what you're up against that very first day. And what I mean is not necessarily the soldier that you're up against, but with your own guys of getting them into the mind state like, hey, welcome to your life for the next six months. Just to briefly touch on what I mean by that, what I mean by that is in many times and many of these tribes are invaded by the Taliban and the Taliban come in and, you know, if your child's between, you know, eight, 10 and 15, a lot of times this, this child's now going to go with them and he's going to learn to trade and he's going to learn how to gunfight. And in many countries, they have these training camps that, I mean, you want to talk about brutal. Our guys have never even killed anybody and all they've shot is plastic targets at 18. And sometimes these kids at 12, 13 years old are live fire clearing a house with tied up, you know, let's call them bad guys, whoever the Taliban deem that, you know, they're going to use as cannon fodder. And these kids are coming in and they're getting live tissue execution training, you know, at a very young age. And I'm not saying that's the, that, that, that that's common and that that's happening all the time, but I know that it's happened and I know that it will continue to happen. And so then you fast, you know, you flip over to the other side and now you've got, uh, you know, an 18 year old Marine that's never killed anybody. He has very light, uh, training as far as boot camps concerned. And then he has maybe a one year workup coming over, but in his life, in his American life, his struggles that he's had to deal with on a, on a, on a mental level are not anywhere close to some of the struggles that these kids have had to deal with that are now 18 years old, drug addicted and, 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 and bloodlust combat savvy. And so I'm not making, I don't want to make them into this big, bad uh, wolf. I'm just simply saying that for our guys, our guys are back on the timescale of training compared to some of these fighters that have been doing this since they were 10, 11, 12 years old. And so to get them in the mindset of, hey, now you need to kill. Sometimes, I guess, maybe in some units that take something from the time that we dropped in to the mud in Marja, everybody was on that page. I didn't have to impress upon the guys what we were getting into. Like the situation itself did that. That's pretty incredible though, that you go into the very first day and it's that well. And, and that's got to reflect a little bit on the training and the lead up and the leadership. Don't you agree? Uh, completely agree. I mean, you'll hear you'll time again, time and time again, you'll hear Marines either write about or speak about their actions and the training kicks in. Uh, when you're in that situation, you go into fight flight, or freeze mode. And when you're trained properly, you go into fight mode and you go into a, a regimented uh, exercise of immediate action drills that your body knows um, so well from training it so many times that you don't have to think. I, In my book, I talk about becoming into this flow state where several hours of operations and you just, your body is, I'm not going to say on autopilot, 
but that's almost what it would seem like is that you're out of your body and you're just, it's, it's happening. It's doing, it's doing what it's supposed to do. And I've seen that in several Marines. So I want to talk a little bit about OP life. Um, and I want to talk about it because at one point in there, you say that psyops were telling you guys that, uh, uh, it'd be getting hot. Operation forces would be coming in on you. Um, you set up locations, uh, you get a couple positions ready, but you mentioned in there that that was the scariest night of your life and you didn't sleep at all. Mm. Now you, you've seen it and maybe compare it to the rest of the book, but I kind of want to hear from your own mouth, you know, what it was about that, that was so different from everything else. Um, so, you know, OP life in itself is a bit different because you're still supporting a local patrol effort, but it's like you might send out five or six guys that are going to do a local little hop right around your OP just to make sure nobody's backland, nobody's doing anything shady. And so there's not a whole lot of kinetic go out and get them, but you are, uh, the reason we were, we were hard pointing this area and, and had this, this combat outpost was because we were picketing, uh, 605 and 608, which were the two MSRs coming in and out of North Marsha proper where we're operating. And what we didn't want to happen is have happen is them continue to backlay IEDs. That way, when we're traveling back and forth between Cop Riley and and uh, Cop Han- Camp Hanson, um, we're losing trucks, we're losing guys because they're they're stuffing fifty to one hundred pound jugs of ammonium nitrate and aluminum, and they're blowing them up. And so it was like, okay, well then we're going to pick it. You know, every couple of clicks, we're going to have a new OP that can see OP to OP damn near. That way nobody's coming in and backland IDs. And so that was the mission was, was to keep the MSRs open and interdict enemy movement for sure. Um, and so that's what you got to understand. And then what you got to understand about OP2, which was my OP, is that OP2 didn't have a roof. The roof at OP2 was cami netting. Um, it was one small compound with cami netting roof with a... Uh, a, a rather large courtyard, uh, okay, uh, that had one entrance on the east side and one entrance on the west side um, or exit. And so, when you're living in a compound with no roof, and then you know you get a call that says, you know, the ICOM chatter Marines are picking up transmissions that the Taliban are going to attack the OP on 608 with no roof, and they're going to attack it in force. Then you got to think about manpower. Um, manpower i had seven marines with me one corpsman um this is you know at this point we'd lost makowitz we'd lost vocolo to gunshot and and, and uh and mersa uh for makowitz he had a banged up leg uh, uh you know in the push and uh, he got infected up, right ended up getting infected yeah and then he had to get you know he had bad times waiting for him so i didn't get him back and so you, you know you got a little bit out from the platoon and um and then we would have like like a seven or eight afghan national army guys with us well what's what you got to know about afghan national army guys is sometimes they're gonna uh operate properly and sometimes they're not gonna operate properly yeah essentially and then that night particularly we had guys that didn't want to help us stand too we got you know and and when i say they didn't want to help us there were times that because they were told to stand on post these guys would pull grenades out and like want to pull a pin on it and then you got to call somebody and be like, Hey, can I kill him? Because he's, cause he's aiming a gun at my guys over post and you know, things like that actually happened, um, several times. Um, 
not where we were, you know, we didn't ever kill any of our, our fellow ANA uh, brethren, but there were several calls where like, Hey, if he keeps pointing his gun at my guys, I'm going to shoot this guy. And then there, you know, they'd, they'd have their Kandak commander get on the hook and then they'd go to post, you know what I mean? But not, not a disciplined unit. And the guys that we had that night were just kind of like that. They were just not the ones you wanted to have in a fight. And so we get this call that, you know, these, these guys are massing numbers and they're going to move on our OP and that's uncomfortable, especially when you, you know, your numbers are weak. Um, and, and the, uh, and the counterpart Afghans that we had, you know, I knew what they were capable of, you know, doing and not doing. And so, um, I think a lot of it is just the unknown. Where are they going to come from? What side is it really my building they're looking at? Um, and we were fine. We stood too. Everybody stayed awake. I put Claymore mines inside of both of the entrance and you know entrances on uh, of the building. So if they were going to come get us, they were going to have to they were going to have to pay for it if they wanted to get in. And um, you know if we're doing our job right with our stand two posts up, we have you know 360 degree visibility on everything coming into us, and we should be engaging them and hitting them way further out than ever having to bring those claymores to bear. Um, but we were ready to do that. And, you know, I spent my night roving the posts and, you know, holding on to Claymore clackers until the sun came up the next morning with, you know, with my APL mat, you know, on the other side of me, if I'm leaving to walk the post, you know, and take my, and take my turn, you know, roving out with the guys and, and getting eyes on, he'd be sitting there with two clackers, one to each entrance, um, and, and vice versa when he would go out, you know, I would have to, uh, I would have to do the same. And, at the end of the day, better safe than sorry is how we looked at it. Everybody was tired the next day, but we didn't get we didn't get attacked that night. And and you know, a big thing is when you're when you're when you're in a building that doesn't have a roof on it, then good hand grenades and good mortar shots, yeah. you know, those are that becomes more dire. You know, you're 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 way less defendable. So three months, five months, and seven months into your deployment. I want to talk about your mental state, physical state. And just tell me kind of what you're feeling. Let's start with three months in. Three months in, um, um, a machine chiseled, you know, all the way down to 160 something pounds, probably. Um, we were a little malnourished in the beginning. We ran out of food. And so that was an issue. But then moving through, you know, the food got, you know, got in, supplies got in. Now we're operating, you know, moving several clicks a day under kit and load and fighting for a lot of it. So you shed the pounds and any, any unnecessary fat pretty quick. And so everybody was in great shape. Um, mentally, three months in, we had lost some guys um, on the 21st of February. Uh, we lose Matthias Hansen, uh, Matthias Hansen, sorry, and the um, that that was that was the one that let us know we weren't invincible. Um, to that point, you know, uh, Vicolo had been shot, but it was a through and through, and ultimately he was running the debt fac on Hansen later, on Camp Hansen later. Uh, Courier had gotten shot, but he was from another platoon. We were there to aid on that day, and and my squad had taken part in you know kind of bailing them out that day, helping bail them out that day. Um, it was a bad day for everybody, but it just, you know, it wasn't our platoon. And so our platoon still felt solid. And then when Matt got killed, um, it just humbled everybody. Uh, you know, when I speak to Marines now, I tell them you can do everything right in the game that you play and people will still die and it'll still be your friends that you zip up into a bag at the end of the day, even when you do everything right. And that was one of those days. We had a classic, 
mission, you know, um, that we built off of some intelligence gathering from the night prior. And we went into an area, we went in uh, reinforced and ready. And even when we did everything right, you know, people still got killed. And so, you know, that's month one and, um, you know, a little bit of month two and was, was, was hard because we just kind of got, we went from a hundred to zero. Uh, so if you ask me mental health in that two, three month area, it was probably not good because we went from, you know, uh, one block war to, to doing CAG operations while the rest of our company went out and continued to fight the Taliban. And we were stuck, you know, at the flagpole securing LZs and such. Um, and so, so morale definitely went down during that, but the, Six months now we're already, you know, we're back out at Cop Riley uh, and we're, we're again taking the fight to the enemy. We had a pretty cool op tempo where you're 10 months on or you're 10, 10 days on OP and then you're 10 days on patrol and then you're 10 days at Cop Riley actually standing the SOG and the post duties. And so that was kind of your break from 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 being kinetic. And then, you know, on patrol and OP duty, you're typically, you know, out there mixing it up and doing some, uh, doing some more offensive style operations. And so six months in, we were good. We were out at Riley. Things were good. We're, you know, setting into a solid battle rhythm at that point. Um, you know, and then you, you go too much past six months and you got guys, you know, that are, uh, starting thinking about home, right. And you, how you don't want to be, uh, the last one injured before the end of the deployment, or you don't want to make it that far. Um, so, and, and I'll be honest with you, um, I, I, w I would say that for, for myself, and, and I know a lot of guys are different, but for myself, um, prayer was a big thing to me to stay sane and to keep my, uh, to, to keep the right headspace. Um, there were several times throughout the deployment where I felt like things were coming undone and I would, you know, I would resort to prayer. I would resort to, um, you know, something higher than myself. Uh, to explain things. And so I, I think a lot of guys did on that deployment, um, you know, to keep their, to, to keep their moral um, sanity in check. Cause you see, see, you see things over there that as a Westerner, you're not, you don't see, you see things like, um, like most of the damage, I, th I think psychological damage that, that I would uh, chalk up for that deployment. Most of it, you know, nearly none of it came from killing the enemy. I don't, I don't lose sleep killing the enemy. Um, but, but the cultural differences where, you know, young, young, young boys and girls, boys and girls would be offered up as sex to, to commanders because that's just what they do there. You know, that's weird. And, and that hits, that hits you weird as a Westerner to see, to, to walk into a, um, you know, to be patrolling and then to walk into a courtyard where there's two kids that have pigmentation discoloration on their skin and maybe a cleft lip and they've got metal collars on with three foot of like pit bull puppy chain and a bowl of slop sitting there. It's 120 degrees out and they have a loincloth on and they're drinking, you know, canal water out of a bowl. And it's just like when the culture is that much different, that, that, that's the things that rocked me. You know, when, when your child is, is worth 10,000 American dollars, cause well, you just have another one and it's no big deal. And that's the best that you can get because they were hit by, you know, an errant rocket or something like that. Like when you see those kind of things, that that's the things that would, you know, that would, you know, mess with me, I suppose you would say. And so for things like that, like you can't do anything about it either. So it's not like you can just put two in the chest of their mom and dad 
because that's what you want to do, but you can't right. do that. And so you have to level that somehow. And for me, the way that I tried to level that was, you know, you know through prayer. So. Well, you know, it's funny that you say that because I've heard other guys on the show say it's not what they did that sticks with them. It's what they didn't do that sticks mm -hmm. with them. And I, I yeah. think that's pretty much saying exactly what you're saying. Uh, it, it is a different. Uh, one other thing about that. Uh, before we kind of move on to transition, leaving leaving the service, I want to talk about patrolling the bazaars at night. I mean, doing anything at night over there is creepy, but you start doing it in an area where uh, where you've already taken contact and you already know bad guys, you know, have already exploited this this terrain before. Then yeah, it gets it, it's a it's never fun. Um, one thing that I think, for, you know, at least for us uh in marja was that initially you know anybody that was good and didn't want to fight they coiled up and they went out to the desert so most of the people inside of marja proper there for the first little while but they just want to fight us and that made things easiest once the local populace start moving back in and now you might have like a 15 year old you know military age male running a shop for his family so he might sleep at that shop just to make sure nobody gets in it so you're moving through a shop and then you see some military age males moving around the shop i mean that's gonna that's you know it's going to spike your, uh, spike your attention for sure. And it's something we got used to. And I think, especially for Kilo company, we didn't, um, we didn't have to, to fuck them up at night too many times before they realized they didn't own the night, but there were other companies, uh, on that deployment that experienced some night attacks at their own firm bases and things of that nature. And, uh, that's not fun. I mean, I mean, gunfights in the day are cool. Gunfights at night hit different. All right, so let's talk about as everyone's transitioning out. I thought a good story that uh, you put in there was where you're flying out. You want to get to this certain chow hall because they serve <laughs> like chili cheese dogs and pizza and shit like that. And you can't wait to get there and do it. Hmm. And you show up and you see these guys in starch camis and they smell good. They've had a shower. They're fresh shaven. You go in there and they tell you, put on new camis before we'll serve you let's talk about this story. You've just spent seven months of your life doing this. You get back and you're not even getting respect from guys that are in the rear. It's weird. Um, it's a weird feeling. And I talk about it in the book because, you know, shout out to all you guys that would fuck up a warfighter's experience. Uh, don't do that. You know, don't be that guy. And there's plenty of you out there. Um, but what happened to myself is after my main element leaves at the end of our deployment we had a pretty gnarly five-day war with the taliban where we just went up and and camped in their backyard and and said bring it and uh and we brought it and we brought a lot of it and um one thing leads to another but because of you know where i was with the with the platoon the key leaders were staying back to do a, a, a rip toe, a relief in place and transition of authority. So my main element flies out and I still am operating with now the new element that's taking care of us. You're well, just left seat, right seat, right? Correct. Correct. Yeah. And so just before my guys fly out, we get in a gunfight. I fireman carry a guy to the, you know, from, from where he got, he got jacked up and, you know, in his camis, whatever the case, I end up having blood that stained my boots and some of my frog trousers and if you've ever gotten blood on your boots or on your frog trousers they don't come out very easy you know especially when you're just still operating in them and so there it is a couple of days later 
all of our stuff was palletized. Like my other gear, my other camis, my other stuff was palletized and flown out with the main body. So now I'm with the Lieutenant and, you know, you know, a couple other key leaders from the company, the CEO, some other people. And the only thing that my Lieutenant and I are talking about is getting back and getting some of those chili cheese burritos that they had at the chow hall. And we had our, you know, our mindset on like, that was the goal, right? Like, cause that's when you're safe. Once we, once you're there, you're good. Uh, we just had to get there. And so it was just that funny thing, you know, like funny thing. If it's open, we're getting it, you know, because everything's gravy when you get out of zone. And, um, and then, yeah, so we get out of zone. One thing leads to another. It's like a, it's a, it's a, it's a dicey flight out of Marja, you know, um, because it was daylight and a slow 47, you know, with a pilot that felt like he was taken off out of new river in, in no duress. And we were like, dude, you are in Marja. You need to climb now. Um, that kind of flight, we make it back. We, we drop our kits, we sprint to the chow hall and we get in the chow hall just in time. There's a line. And, um, and we're just standing there and LT's behind me and I'm just kind of standing there. And the two, uh, strapping gentleman that smelled good in front of us was like a master sergeant and a first sergeant or something like that. I can't even, I can't even tell you. I, I don't remember their names or, or, or anything other than that. One was a master sergeant. I'm pretty sure the other one was first sergeant. And you know, I'm sure we smell like shit. Um, we've been fighting the war, you know, <laughs> at that point, it's the way I felt about it. And this is about to close and then it doesn't open until zero, whatever the next morning. And I haven't eaten since like noon before the last op and the guy turns around and he's like, you got, you got mud all over your boots and camis and you guys smell like a horse's ass or something like that. You need to go clean up. Don't you think you need to be cleaned up before you come in here? And like, I, I just lost it. Uh, I guess LT could see the rage in my eyes and, you know, I still got my gun on me and like I stiffen up and I'm about to tell this guy, you know, like exactly where he can, he can shove all of that and probably, you know, f- screw my career up but you know lt jumped in and kind of locked him on in his own officer way informed them that that wasn't mud that it was dried up blood that we're just coming out of the front and that if they didn't have enough respect and decency to leave that be then they could leave the chow hall and um you know they kind of left it be we got our chili cheese burritos and we laughed about it later um but it just goes to show you how disconnected one can become uh, when it's not his people in the fight and it's not his element in the fight, because bet you, if that was his guys and his kids that came in there, he would have said something like that. It just, it's just one of those things. You know? Do you remember how they tasted? Uh, delicious. I'm sure. <laughs> uh, no, I A don't. A lot of people think about stuff like that. And I always ask like the, the small things. Cause a lot of people remember very strange things about those kind of final moments and stuff, but nothing really stands out to you. No, I mean, uh, there's a meal I talk about in the book during the push that I distinctly remember being the best meal that I'd ever had. Um, and it was because I was starving. It makes sense. Uh, it wasn't a good meal. It was rotten potatoes and old, you know, sick chickens and, but it tasted good. No, at the end, I just, I remember that point, you know, I remember when that guy said that, I just, I just couldn't imagine saying that to a Marine, like as a leader, I couldn't imagine that. And yeah. so I think that just dampened the whole experience for me. Everything that I remember from the chow hall came from those couple of minutes, you know, standing there thinking, yep, you really don't give a shit. You don't know who these guys are that come in here. You don't know what they just did. You don't care. You just want pressed camis and people that smell good. And, um, you know, that's a little, little note to 
why why maybe we're in this mess that we're in with the service so well and and i think you bring up a very good point uh, the detachment and and i'm not only talking about detachment and maybe those guys that you weren't their guys and stuff but you see it a lot in law enforcement in the military when you have that higher up command they have lost touch with what it's like to be on the ground mm-hmm and just don't put any effort into learning it either because they're moving into their next positions. Yeah. And it's unfortunate. And I, I mention it in the book a lot because I, like, I want people to know there are a bunch of me's out there that got out prior to Marja because people fucked their situations up and their experiences up because people like the two Jack wagons in that chow hall showed their faces earlier in their in, in these marines careers and it just ruined them like why well, i don't believe in that i don't want to follow that and when you have too much of that going on then you're going to have retention problems and you're going to have different issues with your force when you when you open it up to to allow bad leaders to come to, to come to the top um and then influence marines and you, you know there's ripple effects to that i always say there's ripple effects to good and bad leadership well, I think the Marines are the only ones that reached their retention goals this year, correct? Uh, they did. They did indeed. Is, they're the only ones that did, correct? The only ones, and I think the only ones that achieved a strong or better rating um, when they reviewed all forces. No, I mean maybe it was the Army was also strong. But I so let's was. let's talk about what you're doing now. Let's talk about leaving the service. Um, you left on the last day of 2014, correct? That's right. So the last day of 2014, I, I, once again, we got to get back into your mind state. You've seen combat. You've done all these things in your career. You're hurt. You have a TBI. Uh, you have hearing problems. Um, let's talk about a couple of the other injuries. And now you're getting out. Scary. Uh, don't know what you're doing. Let's talk about where you're at headspace-wise. Oh, yeah, I was in bad shape uh, getting out because I didn't want to get out. I wanted to stay in. Um, I knew I was dealing with some psychological issues and I was dealing with that on my own the best I could outside of the purview of my command. Um, because if you have psychological issues in the Marine Corps infantry and your command finds out about it, there's a negative stigma that comes with that. And then, you know, you got to think about trust and confidence in somebody leading a squad. And that's, that's the direction that that goes. And, you know, in my life, the only thing I, in my career, the only thing I, knew to do was just to go faster. And so I sought out the uh, MARSOC recruiter, uh, wanted to get a seat to ANS, um, did their special naval warfare physical, and I got flagged for my ears from that physical. And so I'm like, okay, you know, whatever. They wanted me to go back and see a specialist. What I thought they were going to do is do what they do in the regular infantry and reset my baseline and everything would be fine. And instead, what happened was I went to a professional audiologist on Mainside Camp Lejeune who ran me through a series of tests, um, which I did not do well on um, at all. And from there, she basically uh, mandated that I needed to go to the TBI clinic because both of my eardrums they thought were ruptured. Um, I didn't know that. I'd never been assessed for that. I had um, 82 millimeter mortars dropped on me in Marja at a pretty close proximity to where my, my ears took some damage. Uh, and I knew that probably from that point, but I'd never went and got them checked out. Um, again, because in Marja, if you went and got checked out by somebody, you ran the risk of losing your squad or uh, the ability to operate. So when I failed that uh, test though, basically 
she she did the look at my eardrums, realized, yep, you got two ruptured eardrums and you have, you know, this much hearing loss in this ear, this much hearing loss in this ear. And they deem me non non combat deployable. Um and as an infantryman, that's you know, and I was a you know, an instructor at the school of infantry at the time. Um it just took all the wind out of my sails. They said I couldn't hear good enough to control a squad uh, in combat. <clears throat> and so, you know, what do you do with that information? Um, I felt like they took my entire purpose away from me. My entire identity as being a, you know, infantry leader in the Marines, uh, a grunt. And now what do you, what do I, what do I, you can't, I can't deploy anymore. Like now what do I do? Um, makes the chances of being a gunner kind of go out the, out the window. Um, you know, I, I go to this clinic they realize that there's a lot of brain damage. They call it gray matter or white matter. I'm not sure which one they've settled on, but it's permanent brain bruising. Um, they say that they're surprised that I don't already have neurological issues from the amount of, you know, stuff that they're seeing and that they're going to, uh, recommend that I move, be moved to wounded warrior battalion and then, you know, retired, put on a med board. Um, and that's just not what I wanted to hear. I thought that I was checking into ANS, you know, to, 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 to go to the pipeline, to be a raider, not, um, not in my career. So I struggled hard, really, really hard with, uh, with that. Um, you know, it just took my entire wind out of my sails and my career out of my, uh, what am I supposed to do now? You know, and I, you know, I have kids now, like this is my living. Um, uh, and that, that was a, that was a hard time. It was, it was a year long that I had to stay at that battalion, uh, why out processing and, and why I'm doing therapy and physical therapy and trying to get my brain right. And, and to every day go in, you know, go in there and be beside Marines, but I'm not allowed to be, um, you know, I'm not allowed to do my thing anymore. That was hard. And like all your buddies that see you like, Hey, why are you leaving? Okay. So your ears like, but what's the problem? What, you know what I mean? You get, look at your friends and be like, I, you know, I don't ask for this. That, that's a hard thing. Let, let me ask you. And, and I, I know it's a very simple base question, but does it piss you off? And what I mean by that is you, you said during that two or three times, if something's wrong with you mentally, you can't go tell anybody. If something's wrong with you physically, you can't go tell anybody because they'll get rid of you. Does that not piss you off to your core that everything that you fought for, everything that you've done, if you just tell someone, I'm not right, I, I need to get help getting right, you're done. You know, it's, and we could probably talk about it back and forth and find, you know, pros and cons, but and sit and sit in like my situation, it was probably the right thing. Right. Cause you know, almost 12 months or 16 months after I retired, I started having neurological issues, grand mal seizures and things of that, that, that nature. And so telling me that I'm done, this probably was the right, was the right call. Um, being told that you're done sucks. Um, but let me stop you, Ryan. And I, I don't want to interrupt you there, but I, I want to take it back even further. You said if you're in combat and you tell them something's not right, you knew that something was wrong with your hearing and stuff, you're going to get pulled from combat. Do you think maybe if you could have got some help right there, not been pulled out of combat, but figured out something? And, and I don't even know if that's possible, but it, but it, in the way that you explain it, it's not even a possibility 
that maybe all this doesn't get as bad as it did? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I know. I know. In Marja, if you if you got blown up and you started having, you know, uh, certain symptoms, they would pull you from the line. They would send you for an evaluation, depending on what that evaluation would say. Would say if you went back out to the line or not. Um, now I'm an advocate for that. Now I'm an advocate that says our corpsmen should be trained the same as staff on the side of a football sidelines at an NFL game. And if they see something in the eyes of that Marine that's, you know, that goes along with uh, signs and symptoms of post-blast concussive disorder, uh, those guys, whether it's the squad leader or the corpsman or both or the LT, as soon as somebody can verify, yep, he ain't right, he needs to be pulled. And it shouldn't be his call. It shouldn't be up to a squad leader like me to say, no, I'm good, I'm pushing. Um, it's not up to it's not up to an NFL quarterback when his when he meets the, you know, when he meets the criteria for having brain damage or a head injury that he gets pulled out. This is the number of games. This is how long we need to make sure he's not completely scrambled. And if he is, these are the actions that we should take now you know, like those SOPs already exist. And so why we can't replicate those SOPs in the infantry line is beyond me because I think a lot of these issues that we're having are people with, with damaged brains, with blown up brains. Now, does it piss me off to say that that didn't happen for me? Or does it piss me off that when you show any sign of injury that you get, uh, that negative stigma, that negative stigma shouldn't be there. You look at the special forces does this. They keep the guys in the teams as long as they need to recover. They take care of them. They put them under their wing. And I think what you have in, in the Marine Corps line infantry is you have just the big machine. And this is just a little cog. And all we got to do is pull this little cog out and we'll put this other little cog in. And then this cog is, you know, just he's, he just go, he'll go recover somewhere. But it's like that detached from all of his buddies and sent to a battalion where he knows nobody to try to try to get better. And, and so I think there's, I think we have a long way we can come there. And, 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 and that, that's not just, uh, guys in recovery, that's guys in transition to get out to, you know, you, you spend a career building this person into a machine, uh, you know, a, 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 a killing machine. And then you spend two weeks in the seps and taps, uh, administrative class on showing him how to get out and transition, uh, that we fall flat right there. And I think we do it, you know, service wide. I always ask this, maybe there's not an answer. I would like to hear yours. So how do we fix that? Because this seems almost at a cellular level now. We know what the problem is. Enough people have said it. There's enough advocates out there that have done it. Alternative therapies have been introduced. Uh, better ways to transition have been introduced. Yet we, we seem to be moving very slow towards that end goal. Yeah, I think there's a lot that we can can be done. Um, I think a longer steps and taps. I think a, a separation from the service should be, in my opinion, you know, a three to six month process. It shouldn't be this two week hurry up and check out. Now we don't need you anymore. You're off our boat space and boom, you're out as fast as possible. And I know the Marine Corps has come a little bit away, at least since I've gotten out because they have skill bridge now where if guys are qualified, they can move over to skill bridge and go out and be interning onto something, you know, in, into a, uh, a skill that they'll actually move into and have job placement for, which I think is great. Um, but we I have think a couple of Marsoc guys here where I'm at that are doing that. Yeah, and I think that's great. I think that's absolutely the way. Get them into these into these programs um, and let them 
let them take those camis off and let them take that pack off and let them work with some other people and some other organizations and see how that kind of stuff flies out. Don't run. And, and you know, the Marine Corps was bad about it. And, and I don't know if they still are, but you know, op tempo was different when I was in, but they were real bad about, we're going to run you right up until 30 days till. And then, you know, maybe even two weeks till, and then we're going to give you a bunch of the staff duty because you're not out there training like the other boys. And then you need to hurry up and check out. And then it's like, boom, you're gone. It's like, what are we doing? What, what, this is, this was a national treasure yesterday. And today it doesn't matter. What are we doing? And that's the way I feel about it. And I feel like there could be, I, th I think that we have a ways that we can still come. And I think a lot of that is due to uh, poor leadership at the at, at senior levels. I, I really do. I believe that um, there are units that have great leadership and their guys' transition processes go much smoother. And then you have these other guys that are going to squeeze, you know, every every dime out of that cog until the time's up. And then, well, that's not my cog anymore. I don't have to worry about that cog. And it's still a national treasure. It's still a Marine NCO or or uh, or otherwise that gave you know gave his time and life to be out here. You don't treat them like that. Uh, they're not expendable. Um, so I think there's a ways that we can go about it. Um, getting, getting, uh, you know, through the bureaucracy and the red tape and, uh, what class is going to be certified and who's going to get the contract and all the procurement, uh, issues that come along with, you know, bringing a contracted agency in to do something like that or start a, um, a new system up. I think that that is what it is. You look at the amount of uh, red tape and bureaucracy, the hill that you have to climb, and I think that keeps most people out of it. So with transition, the importance of having a plan, I don't think a lot of people, even when they know that that time is coming, they don't plan for it. Mm. They, they just think, hey, I'm getting out. I'm going to start this new thing. It's going to be great. And we go back to that, you know, that romanticizing what's about to happen. And then it fucking kicks them right in the face. And they realize, oh, shit, I don't have a plan. I don't have a purpose. You mentioned it yourself. How do we, as guys that are on the outside in law enforcement, first responders, military, guys that are out there, how do we help bring those guys out, slow down that tempo, and get their plans organized with them? You know, I think a lot of like, like what you're doing, what I'm doing with my platform, uh, what, a, what a lot of guys are doing, they're trying to give back now. We're trying to say, hey, this is how we did it and it didn't work well. Um, so maybe you can learn from my mistakes as a way to not have to repeat them again. And that's one of the big reasons I started my show was I, I realized that, you know, I lost my purpose. I became stuck. I abused alcohol, um, time with my family, time with myself and my uh getting in my own way, clouding my own thoughts up because, uh, you know, I was trying to change what, what, what I, you know, I thought was becoming of my life. And, um, and that's just a way to get stuck. Uh, what people don't tell you about your service in the Marine Corps is that, um, it is some of the most proud moments that you'll ever have because you're selflessly giving of yourself. You're, you're doing something that's so much higher than self that, uh, you don't even realize it at the time, but it's so much higher that it creates this, um, it manifests this thing within you, this, this personality, this, this trait that you identify with. And then, and then like clockwork when it's taken away, whether it's because you got out under your own recognizance or because you were forced out because of injury or other, other means, um, you're walking around and you just have this, this void. You're not whole, you, you know, you're not, 
there's something in your pit. There's something missing. You don't have this mission. You don't have, and I'm here to tell you it's because you don't have something bigger than yourself. Your entire life up to this point has been in service to other people. And you have gotten comfortable with that because that's where you're supposed to be. But when that's taken from you, you have to find purpose again. You have to find it somewhere. And if you haven't found it, you got to keep looking. Um, I had no purpose and I didn't know what I was going to do. And I didn't know how my experiences translated to the civilian world. And it was like, okay, what can I do to give back to this community then? Right? I have to have a new action plan. I have to come up with something because I can't just sit here and reel about this. I can't sit here purposeless. Um, and so that's how it was for me. It became this, this mission to again, give back to my community. However I could, I knew that I wanted to speak. I knew that I wanted to, uh, influence Marines. Um, and so I went to school and when I went to school, I went for speech drafting and speech writing and, um, and public speaking. And, and I went, uh, for literature so that I could make my book better. And those are the ways that I meant to selfish, selflessly give back to my community. And then it just kind of took a path of its own. The book became successful. The podcast started, you know, picking up steam and uh, started getting some good podcasts on. And, and then I started getting, you know, testimonials from guys telling me, thanks for doing this. Like, this is what I needed in transition was to see this. And so then that, that that's all the more motivation and reinforcement for me to say, okay, we're going to keep doing this do it as many times as we have to, to show these guys that even though you've been downrange, your life doesn't have to be this. You can, you can keep living your best life, just like our guys would want us to do in spite of your injuries. And we'll figure out how to correlate that back to the Marine Corps and we'll figure out how to give back. But it's not just stop and say, oh, my time is done. My purpose is up. Purpose isn't up. Let's talk about the podcast a little bit. And and uh, we've kind of hit around it a little bit in here. Um, but let's talk about what you're doing with it. Some of the guests that you're talking to and what you're really trying to hope to accomplish with it. Yeah, I mean, it's just that it's. um I started a jo choices, not chances that came from, from our Lieutenant Marja is one of the speeches he, he would give. He'd say, you know, and, and life, you know, life is 99% the choices you make and 1% the chances that you're put in front of you. You always have a choice. You control your attitude and your effort. And if you control those two things, then you can control at least that, you know, and, um, make good choices. If, if you make good choices, you will have good outcomes. If you make bad choices, you're going to have less than favorable outcomes. And so we launched a podcast, um, myself and, and Matt Charette launched a podcast and, um, and it's been great. I like to show guys that I know personally have been through the rigors of war and have decided not to be a victim on the backside of it and have decided to stand up and say, no, it's okay for you to beat your chest and say, I'm a man. And I did these things. That's okay. That's okay. In this area, you know, of your life. Um, but you also need to stand up and do what's right as a man. You need to raise your children. You need to have faith. You need to spread the good word to your brothers and sisters. If you've got word that can help somebody out through their transition, it's your job to go out and help them. I don't look at this as, as like a fun thing. I look at this as a responsibility. I've, I've struggled through that over there and I know that. And I know that struggle. And I don't want all of you to feel this struggle. So I'm going to put as much out there as I can so that you don't ever have to feel this struggle. And, and it's working. Um, I don't bring anybody on that's phony. I don't bring anybody on my show that's, you know, grandiose about themselves. 
um, I bring people on that want to still out of out of selfless devotion to their to their community, give back to the guys that um, that are on their way out and transitioning. And, you know, I think that we can I think that we can do that. I think that we've done a good job of doing that. And, and then on the other side of that, there's a civilian side of this. We have a civilian Congress that controls the military. And uh, two time, too many times in my life before big events did I have my guys out in the quad doing die, motherfucker, die, and, and, and peanut butter, jam, jam, gun drills instead of actually firing ammunition, instead of actually training like we fight, like our slogans say. And it does that because there are um, junior congressmen and women in the places where the levers of action sit that do not understand that war is a real thing and that do not understand 22-year-old little national treasures, young men, boys are going out there at 18 years old and waging war on their behalf. And that's a problem for me. And so if I can bring light to that, make sure you see these friends that I have with their issues and their missing limbs and missing pieces of their mind, um, then I'm going to keep it up there and I'm going to keep it in front of you. And I'm say, this is what they, this is what they do for you. So you better take your job serious and make sure that they have what they need because we're only one generation from this whole thing falling apart. Absolutely. That's absolutely right. And a, a lot of people, you know, when I ask them, what can people do? <laughs> their big answer is vote. Mm-hmm. Vote what is what needs the change. And we're coming up on an election right now. With all this, with your podcast, with the help that you're doing with transition, what do you see kind of to wrap all this up? What do you see as your biggest challenge in the future for all this? I think my biggest challenge in the future is maintaining maintaining my mission statement throughout the smog. There are things that I've talked about on my show already. I've had um, guests on my show, one of them being Lieutenant Colonel Scheller. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Scheller, during the fall of Hamid Karzai, demanded answers and accountability from the upper echelons of the Marine Corps and uh, military service. And I got to be honest with you, any war fighter over the last 20 years, some of that reside, you know, resonated inside of us, some more than others, but when you see something like that and you see the, the complete abandonment of the warrior ethos of which you have structured your life and you see it by the people who you structured your life for that, that does some, some, some damage, some damage was done there. And I don't have to play by anybody's rules. And, and so I bring on the people that I want to talk to that are talking about issues and talking about things that I want to talk about. And I find interesting. So I brought him on, um, The reason I say that that's a struggle is because if you bring the wrong person on and the narrative runs counter to what other people uh, are trying to push, you can be uh, canceled for it. You can be shoved aside. You can be labeled on social media as a violent extremist or that violent extreme behavior was happening inside that podcast, which it absolutely was not. And it absolutely was flagged for it. Shadow banning happened. And so I guess uh, the Scheller episode really opened my eyes to what big media and, 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 and probably big Marine Corps, um, are capable of when it comes to tying in with big media. Um, I love the Marine Corps. I love the Marine Corps. I've had several Marines on. And the reason I talk about these issues is out of my love and protection for the Marine Corps, because 
you cannot there there are certain play there are certain places in my opinion that you cannot introduce this woke ideology that we are seeing across the nation right now and that's one of them it doesn't work there you have to go somewhere else and i think that that will probably be a struggle for me now i just had and tomorrow i released the trailer for chief warrant officer five gunner larose senior gunner in the uh in the marine corps right now gunner larose part of the joint terrors uh, i'm sorry the joint task force on the lethality for the marines for new force design in 2030 um speaks to drones speaks to new equipment new procurement talks about the legacy of the marines and how it's still strong talks about um the things that he's witnessed with the new force design and drone warfare incorporating combined arms dilemma against the enemy um, we had a great conversation coming from one of the senior tactical advisors to the entire marine corps and so it we've we've battled back but there there will be struggles when running contentious stories or or, or shining light on contentious stories in the future all right where can people find you, man? They need to get this book. They need to get onto the podcast. They need to just hear about you. Let's talk about it. Where can they find you? Yeah. So choices, not chances podcast on Facebook and Instagram. You can find me at Ryan Rogers on Instagram as well on Facebook as well. Ryan Nicholas Rogers. Um, the, the book is lines of Marja. You can find it on amazon.com price to sell. I also have copies if you want them inscribed. I have some copies uh, at the house that I can that can get out in the mail. And you can just uh, get up to, with me on any one of those social platforms through DM. I also have a website at uh, www.choicesnotchancespodcast.com. All of our latest stuff is on there. And um, and you can you, you can essentially get to me through any of those outlets uh, through the through the messenger. Any last messages that you want to put out to the audience? Yeah, guys, if you're stuck, there's ways to become unstuck. Um, get online, get on some of these, the, these podcasts, these personalities. I highly rec recommend Jordan Peterson, Jocko Willinks, Joe Rogan. Um, those are three of the big ones that I still to this day am on constantly being, uh, you know, keeping my mind sharp. We'd love to see you again. You know, like DJ, I'd love to have you. I'd love to have you come on and get some content from us. Um, but if you need if you need a jump start, man, get get in the ears of these people that have already been through uh, what you're going through and find out what worked for them. And then aside from that, you know, wake up every day and selflessly dedicate yourself to service back to other people. Don't think about the me when you're doing stuff for other people and you're bringing other people up. Everything else will find its way. But if you're sitting every day. Uh, thinking about being a victim and thinking about just settling where you're at. Those are the, those are the feelings. When you stop, you're going backwards. You have to go forward and you have to produce, find a new mission, make a, make a, make an action statement and say to myself, this is what I'm going to do to get out. And then let us help you. Ryan, fantastic conversation, man. I'm, I'm so glad you came on here. I'm so glad we got to talk about this book and people got to hear what you're doing out there. Guys, uh, you know where you can always find more of me. You know you can find me on Instagram, the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast. And you can find me on YouTube where all these conversations are in video form at the DTD podcast. But the one-stop shop for the show, dtdpodcast.net. It's got audio. It's got video. Ryan's got his own episode page. It's got pictures of his family, pictures of him being in the military, and all the links that you can find him on. Also, don't forget, stop by our sponsor, Police Coffee at policecoffee.com. Now, every week I say it, it's an officer-owned business. You know they're dedicated to crafting the finest coffees. 
You know they ship them as soon as they're made to provide you with the freshest coffee available. And you know each batch is roasted fresh by people who know what it means to stay vigilant. Now, they're specialty coffees. They don't waste one drop of flavor when it's concerned. And their coffee's some of the best you'll find. But they also serve a very important cause. They give back to our community. 50% of their profits go towards helping the family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. And that's one thing that I can get behind. Police Coffee at policecoffee.com. And, you know, guys, I say it before, it's fall now. Everyone's into pumpkin spice. Well, guess what? policecoffee.com has got your pumpkin spice so make sure you get over there and get it and when you're on the site djk10 will get you 10 percent off your order that's going to be it for the show guys go check out this book lions of marja go check out his podcast ryan thank you so much guys that's going to be the show for tonight that's ryan i'm dj that's the show we'll catch you guys on the next one see you later